Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is the perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through.
Jackson, thank you once again for coming to Bard's Logic Political Talk, the grassroots We the People show and part of the uh, conservative conversation. Uh, tonight we are going to have a guest with us from the LaRusse organization, David Christie. Now, I don't know if he's any relation to Chris Christie, but we'll have on to the program to talk about the Conference uh, for Security for All Nations that was uh, hosted by the Schiller Institute. It's actually called the uh, Conference to Establish a New Security and Development uh, Architecture for All Nations. And again, that was hosted by the Schiller Institute. And during that conference, there was uh, many speakers uh, there from many uh, different countries. Uh, if you go back to the podcast, you'll be able to uh, see all of those. Uh, at least the ones that we had here on the program. Uh, now, it was a six-hour conference, maybe even longer than that, and we were only able to cover about three hours of it just because, you know, with the different limitations on the show. Uh, but they had, you know, folks there from, of course, Helga Zepp LaRouche, uh, the Schiller Institute founder. Uh, she did the keynote, uh, keynote uh, speech there. And then we heard people from, you know, the Russian Federation, India, South Africa, China, Italy, uh, of course, here, you know, the U.S., uh, and even Colombia. Now, at the conference itself, I mean, they had other, you know, nations there as well. Uh, they, you know, people from Congo, France, you know, out there. And if we've got time, I am going to play a part of uh, the audio that we weren't able to have here on the show, again, because of the, the time limitations. Uh, but we'll hopefully be able to play a little bit on the, the, the program tonight and, you know, before our guest comes in. Uh, and so one of the things I want to go over since, you know, we, we do want to talk about, you know, we are going to talk about things, you know, are happening around the world. I thought folks here uh, may find it interesting to find out where all of our listeners actually uh, come from. Uh, or, or, you know, where they're at. So, of course, the biggest uh, amount of people that come on to the show uh, are, or listen to the show, I should say, are from the United States. We got about 83.36% of our listening audience is here uh, in these United States. Now, we also have a, you know, a listenership that is broken down pretty far, you know, from that uh, in other countries such as Canada, which currently is the second uh, highest listenership, at least in percentage. You know, again, the United States is 83.36, but 3.92% of our listenership is in Canada. And then we have 2.46% of our listenership uh, is in the United Kingdom. And lately, Slovakia has uh, come in uh, in rank to our listenership with 1.76% of our uh, audience coming from Slovakia, and one thing I'm pretty excited about uh, to, to start seeing is a little bit more of a presence in Ireland. We all know how I feel about Ireland being <laughs> Irish, uh, which brings us to 1.41%. Uh, uh, now, we do have uh, other nations uh, that split up the rest, and I won't go through all of them because there's, there's a lot of different nations here, and we actually do have listeners in Russia. So there's some listeners out there from Russia. We do have some in China. We do have some there in India. And then uh, I'm not seeing any in Ukraine, uh, but, you know, we do have uh, 
some of those nations, which of course you know is making uh, the news uh, as well. So um, we even have some in Cambodia and Thailand. Uh, we did have a gentleman he used to call in from Thailand occasionally, so maybe he spread the word there in, in China, uh, Thailand about uh, Bard's logic. So I thought people might find that interesting uh, to hear some of the places around the world uh, that Bard's logic political talk is being listened to. So I thought people would find that little a uh, little interesting. I know I know I do, especially again, I really like to hear about the uh, about Ireland. And so if you didn't get the opportunity to listen to the uh, the podcast with us streaming uh, the conference, of course, you could go uh, here on Blog Talk Radio and go to the uh, the podcast and listen to it. But also, I mean, because you can't see video, and I know sometimes video is more exciting than just listening, and now if you're in your car listening or, you know, listening through your cell phone, uh, then, of course, you you know can't do video. You just listen to the audio, which, of course, we uh, appreciate. But you can, now they have uh, at the Schiller Institute, uh, they do have the video of the conference as well. So we do have a link to the Schiller Institute here on uh, the discussion for tonight uh, to the Schiller Institute. So certainly check it out. So I figured people would uh, – You'd be interested for that. Now, one of the things uh, we haven't gone from for a while is uh, the Bard's Logic newsroom, where you can go to www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com. And we got an update here about the Durham probe. And that's where you can find that in the Bard's Logic newsroom. Durham probe judge denies Seussman motion to dismiss the case. Trial begins next month. It says the federal judge presiding over the case of former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Seussman denied his request to dismiss the case brought against him by special counsel John Durham Wednesday, ordering that the trial go forward as planned next month. Seussman in February filed a motion to dismiss the case against him. Seussman was charged with making a false statement to a federal agent and has pleaded not guilty. In a court filing Wednesday, U.S. District Judge Christopher Cooper outlined the charges against Seussman brought by the Durham and Panel Grand Jury last year. Cooper detailed Durham's indictment, which alleges that Seussman told then-FBI General Counsel James Baker in 2016, less than two months before the 2016 presidential election, that he was not doing work, quote, for any client, unquote when he requested and held a meeting in which he presented supposed purported data and white papers that alleged demonstrated a covert communication channel between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, which has ties to the Kremlin. Specifically, Sussman alleged Baker uh, that he was not attending the meeting on behalf of any client when, in fact, he had assembled and conveying the information on behalf of two specific clients a technology industry executive named Rodney Joffe, and the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, Cooper wrote. The FBI opened an investigation based on the information Seussman provided, but ultimately determined there was insufficient evidence to support the existence of a communication channel between the Trump campaign and the Russian bank. Cooper wrote, Seussman has pled not guilty to the charge and denies lying to the FBI. Cooper wrote that Sussman's sole argument for dismissal of this case is that, quote, even taking the, 
Even taking the allegations of the indictment as true, his purported misrepresentation to Baker was immaterial as a matter of law and therefore cannot be cannot support a convention under USC 1001, making false statements to an agent. The court will deny the motion, Cuba wrote, noting that the standard for material under U.S. code is whether the statement had a natural tendency to influence or is capable of influencing either a discrete decision or any other function of the government agency to which it was addressed. Cooper explains that Seisman argued that his alleged statement to Baker that it was not at the meeting on behalf of a client, could have not possibly influenced what was, in his view, the only discrete decision before the Bureau at the time, whether to initiate an investigation in the Trump's campaign asserted communication with the Russian bank. Cooper said Seussman, quote, largely ignores the second part of the test, whether the statement could influence any other function of the agency. Seussman seeks to cabin this holding to statement made during the course of an ongoing investigation, but the court sees no basis for that bright line divide, Cooper wrote. As the special counsel argues, it is at least possible that statements made to the law enforcement prior to an investigation could materially influence the later trajectory of the investigation. Seussman offers no legal authority to the contrary. Cooper noted that whether Seussman's alleged statement was, quote, in fact capable of influencing either the commencement or the latter conduct of the FBI's investigation is a very different question and one that parties hotly dispute. The lines thus are drawn, but the court cannot resolve the standoff prior to trial, Cooper wrote. Meanwhile, Cooper last month rejected Seussman's motion to strike a factual background section in the Durham filing in February. Seussman's legal team filed that motion in February, demanding that the court strike portions of the February 11th filing, including the factual background section, claiming it would taint the jury poll. I am not going to strike anything from the record, Cooper said, during a status hearing last month. Whatever effect the filing has had already passed. Durham in February 11th. Following the background or factual background in question, alleged Seussman provided two government agencies with information from a tech executive that attempted to tie Donald Trump, who was a presidential candidate at the time, to Russia-based Alpha Bank. The tech executive has since identified himself as Ronnie Jaffe. Jaffe is not named in Durham's filing and has not been charged with the crime. Durham alleged that Seussman, Jaffe, and Jaffe's associate exploited internet traffic about a particular health care provider, Trump Tower, Trump Central Park West apartment building, and the executive office of the President of the United States in order to establish an interfere and narrative tying Trump to Russia. Durham alleges bill, billing records reflect that he repeatedly billed the Clinton campaign for his work on the Alpha Bank allegations. Seussman's legal team in the motion to strike the allegations said Durham had done more than simply file a document identifying potential conflicts of interest. Rather, the special counsel has again made a filing in the case that unnecessarily includes uh, prejudicial and false allegations or prejudicial and false allegations that are irrelevant to his motion and to charge defense and are plainly intended to politicize the case 
inflame media coverage and taunt the jury taint the jury poll, Seussman's lawyer said. In a separate motion, Durham argued there was no basis to strike any part of the filing and pushed back against claims that his office intentionally sought to politicize the case. He defended the additional factual detail he concluded, which he argued was central to proving Sussman's alleged criminal conduct. While he did not grant Sussman's motion to strike, Judge Cooper on Thursday appears to criticize the prosecution, saying the latest dust-up strikes him as a sideshow. Sussman's trial is set to begin on May 16th. So, May 16th of 2022, kind of late. I mean, I really do think that, you know, Durham has been dragging his feet uh, when it comes to what's going on. Now, he, you know, I know investigations take time, but, you know, I think, and, and who knows, maybe it'll be timely uh, for the uh, midterm elections. Not that I think that the Republicans are going to need any help uh, when it comes to the, uh, the midterm elections. Uh, I think that's going to be a reckoning, at least I hope so. And I just don't think that no matter how much uh, that the Democrats are going to try to uh, manipulate the vote in 2022, I mean, I think that their defeat is going to be so overwhelming uh, that they're, they're just not going to be able to do it. But, you know, uh, we'll see. We'll, you know, they're, they're talking about an, another, you know, different variant of COVID, but I think, I think the, the people are done. I think everyone's done with COVID. Um, so as I promised, uh, I do want to, since I got this keyed up now for you, because uh, I want to, this is a part of the, did I delete it? Or not delete it, I said all of it. Uh, this is the part uh, that I wanted to see, uh, or listen to rather, <laughs> uh, of the conference that, you know, again, we weren't able to, uh, we weren't able to play uh, because, again, of time constraints, but I did want to play as, as much of it as I can uh, here for the audience. Uh, so that they can hear it uh, as well. So I'm getting that keyed up for you uh, so that we can get that part. And me too. I, I haven't had an opportunity to listen to it. And so what we'll do is we'll play that audio until, you know, our guest comes in. I think he's uh, scheduled to come either quarter to or the top of the hour, which, again, I think that gives us a good, uh, you know, opportunity to, you know, listen to what the, you know, this panel is. So, just waiting for it to start, and then I'll get uh, get it so the people can hear it as well. So bear with a little silence for a moment, and here we go. Hello. Welcome back to our conference. For those just joining, this is the Schiller Institute Conference to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations. I'm Harley Schlanger, and I'll moderate this, our third panel, which is on security. The just-concluded panel on economics detailed the devastation. Okay, and that's going to be on security, so I'd really like to hear that. But first, we do have Kelly uh, wanting to chime in, so let's go ahead and get Kelly in before we play that. Um, Thank you very much, Kelly, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Kelly, you raised your hand to come in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, sorry. Hey, yeah, yeah, California here, Northern California, near the Oregon border. We got uh, rain coming in, maybe some snow. We really need the moisture, so that's some good things. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find 
seriously digging, but I'll find it. Um, the lieutenant governor of was indicted recently. Yeah. Uh, if you've heard about that, lieutenant governor uh, was Brian Benjamin, and indicted by federal grand jury. And guess what? For oh, surprise, bribery. My study of <laughs> indictments of political figures. I'd say nine times out of ten, it's bribery. And uh, he had – I can read you some of this, or do you want a summary? Well, I'm going to just give us a, a summary there, Kelly, and then if we, we have time, okay, we'll, we'll so go over the details. There was a real estate developer and uh, giving quite a bit of campaign contributions, and then uh, – there was other things going on, but for the purpose of, uh, I guess, helping him, helping this this uh, developer have a business advantage. So then there was a quid pro quo, and uh, that's bribery. Plain and simple, said Damian Williams, the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, during his <clears throat> briefing with the press. Uh, in addition, Benjamin is accused of repeatedly lying to cover up the scheme including by falsifying campaign forms and lying on documents he filled out before becoming lieutenant governor. Benjamin was arrested on Tuesday morning, appeared in court on Tuesday afternoon. Um, Let's see, you know, just abuse of public funds and other things. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Benjamin, was he was the state senator, state house senator, until September 9th of 2021. When he was appointed by New York Governor Kathy Holchul. Holchul had just become the governor following the resignation of Andrew Cuomo over sexual misconduct allegations. So, interesting, isn't it? And then we got oh, our beloved Stacey Abrams, which uh, I can find that one. Stacey Ab- Abrams and asking the judge, hey, can I break the law? And spend a lot of campaign money and do this and that and raise more money. I said, just no. Uh, this is what the statutes from Georgia say. And like, dude, why aren't you reading the law? Why isn't your attorney reading the law? So <clears throat> I guess there's certain laws that don't apply to certain people, or at least in their mind. But at least you know we have systems of accountability still in effect. Um, Fiat justitia ruat calium, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. That's a Latin phrase, fiat justitia ruat calium. So, you know, America, we still got a good nation here. When we see, you know, the Durham report and other things, people being held to account, even for lying, swaying an election, all sorts of things, blah, blah, blah. We still have the rule of law. Some people will say all the judges are corrupt. No, no, no. There might be some corrupt judges, but a lot of times people don't understand the law because they don't understand the law, then they say the judge is corrupt. may not be the case. But if we have a system of justice and the bad guys are getting rounded up, well then great. That's the way it ought to be. We can continue with our country. I mean, you look at third world countries, <laughs> the law is by gun, the law is by force, the law is by sword. We have very many blessings here living in this country still, even though we got lots of problems. Um, I want to. Are we still waiting for the your guest to come on? We've got yeah, he's going to be coming in around quarter till the hour or the top of the next hour. 
Oh, okay. Well, my girlfriend's been reading this book, and I want to share some findings that scientists have figured out how to make animals sterile. And, uh, yeah, this is a very interesting read. It's from the book called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law by Mary Roach. And she did an excellent job of researching, and she's looking at these problems when certain animals get overpopulated in their interaction with humans. You know, like in New York City, in the sewers, there's all sorts of uh, rats. In Washington, D.C., they live in the Capitol building, but that's another story. Um, India, they have monkeys. <laughs> India, they have monkeys. Assateague Island, Maryland, which I've actually been to, a, a, a huge wild horse uh, population. But what they do is they just go ahead and round them up and bit them off. Um, and so in North Dakota, oh, in, in, in Great Britain, they're worried about the gray squirrel overcoming the red squirrel. And uh, so how do you deal with these animals? They considered, uh, like with rats in New York, you give them uh, bait that has a, a sterility chemical in it, and then the rats don't populate so much, and over the many years, the older ones just die off, and the new ones aren't coming in. But in New York, in, uh, this is in this book I, did, I mentioned, um, they figured out how to sterilize wild horses in North Dakota at the Theodore Roosevelt National Park. It says here um, they give them an injection. The mares, the, the the female horses, and then you got to give them a booster too. And uh, <clears throat> what it reads here is: um, after an initial injection and a single booster shot, 92% of mares in North Dakota's horse dense Theodore Roosevelt National remain infertile seven years later. Hmm. This book is written in 2021. So the injection started in 2014, and for seven years they've figured out how to give animals injections so they are sterile. Hmm. There are some people that think that we have too many people in the world, so maybe we could find a way to inject people and they become sterile. Gardasil had that problem in uh, Texas, and they mandated that for girls, and that was ridiculous. But what concerns me, and it's just a, a concern, if they figured out how to make animals sterile, is this one of the reasons why we're having the COVID shots to make people sterile? In the no, future, I we will that realize. I myself, actually, Kelly. Oh, you did? Okay. Oh, gosh, yeah. Certainly. That's one of the reasons why I wouldn't let my family get it. Oh, good for you. Yeah, so this is, uh, hmm test on animals first, and then they test on humans. We shall see in six months, a year, five years, when couples can't get pregnant. Of course, there's couples that can't get pregnant now, but that's kind of small. I don't know what that percentage is, 5%, maybe 10 But if all of a sudden we're shooting up to 60 70 92% of people that are vaccinated, yeah, we can trace it back, and there's going to be a lot of angry people that they're not able to have children. That's a big if. We'll just have to see where well, this will go. Well, personally, that's why I think they want to give it to – personally, I think that's why they want to give it to children. That's why I think there's – I think that's why there's a push to, to give children who don't need, you know, this, this COVID vaccine, you know, 
You know, this, this, this shot, well, I, 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 do, I, I truly think it was meant to sterilize yeah. Well, it, it, highly, highly possible. I mean, something doesn't make sense when with COVID, <clears throat> the shots, first of all, kids, you know, uh, 18 or younger, they have about a 0.0000001% chance of uh, contracting it. If it is, it's not very severe. And they have a 99.99999% recovery rate. Why are we doing this to kids? I don't understand. So time time will tell. Time will tell. Yeah, and that, yeah, that, and that's certainly yeah. Again, that's certainly one of my thoughts. Was I find it interesting though? If they're thinking long term, I wonder what their thoughts are because you know, yes, you've had some conservative people, you know, get the shot too. But most of the people who got the shot are uh, are liberals, right? You know, and so it's like well, between abortion and this new shot. I mean, are they are they really forward thinking? I mean, they're what they get, they're going to abort and sterilize them, themselves out of existence. Um. Well, that's a very real possibility. We'll just have to see. Um. Oh, uh, you know they got the shooter in New York. Of course, anybody watching the news will know about I heard, the shooter. Yeah, I heard a little bit about that. Yeah, my neighbor knocks on my door. Do you hear about this mass shooting? Oh, gosh, not another one. I mean, there's one in Sacramento, and then there's one in... Nobody died in New York in the subway, but Epoch Times, uh, they did arrest him. They 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 had a suspect named, and then somebody gave the police a tip, and uh, he's taken into custody, and he has mental issues, of course. Um, he was already charged uh, with terrorism. So Frank James, he's 62, and they arrested him, and he was taken away without incident. But he was apparently upset a number of things. Um, Let me get to where it says what he was upset about and why he did this. Um, He traveled from Wisconsin to Philadelphia, and he rented an apartment, storage unit, and then he had a lengthy criminal record, including nine arrests in New York and three in New Jersey. He was never convicted of wow. a felony, which enabled him to legally obtain a gun. Says hmm. James Essick, a New York Police Department official. <clears throat> U-Haul, he rented it in Philadelphia. He drove it into New York hours before the attack. There are some cameras other places that caught him. It was a turnstile. Okay. He's entering the station through a turnstile. All right. Well, there's also if you travel on the East Coast, there's a lot of toll um, toll stations. You know, you pay for the use of the roads. Oh that yeah, thing, and they have cameras right. there. Yeah. So they they probably put it together. So use a nine millimeter semi-automatic hatchet, liquid bleed to be gasoline, a, ba- a bag with consumer grade fireworks and a hobby fuse. Um, okay. He was an owner of a YouTube account, posted dozens of videos that have been removed by YouTube. But James, uh, Mr. Mr. James, a black male, ranted about police shooting of black people and repeatedly used racial epitaphs against white and Hispanic people, according to the Epoch Times Review. The only Facebook account 
James called President Donald Trump and his supporters racist and repeatedly posted violent images and memes, including one that said, you may not be able to beat him, but you can sure as hell shoot him. Oh, my. Uh, Let's see. And he wasn't too happy with uh, Governor Holchel or Democrats because they didn't address mental the, the mentally ill in the city or state of New York. Hmm. Didn't address the mentally ill. Okay. Uh, one of his video, James describing himself having a crisis of mental health, and he's had other hey, problems. Yeah. So I'm going to go to. I've, I've got uh, something going on here outside the studio. Um, I'm going to have to put an audio on and check, and check that out, okay? I'm going to play part of the conference, okay? Okay. All right, thank you. Station done by demanding that nations adhere to the dictates of the neoliberal financial system, which benefits the speculative financiers of the city of London and Wall Street and is defended by the military power of the United States and NATO. This system is presently threatened by an emerging realignment of nations, nations which do not accept the arbitrary rules demanded by the beneficiaries of the rules-based order. In this panel, speakers will discuss how we can organize a world in which the benefit of all peoples and all sovereign nations can live and progress in peaceful, mutually beneficial cooperation. Our first speaker will be Jacques Cheminard. Jacques is the president of Solidarité et Progrès in France, a former presidential candidate for France, and he'll be speaking on the peace of Westphalia to to escape the Thucydides trap. Jacques? The peace of Westphalia to escape the Thucydides trap. Beginning in 1618, the 30 Years' War claimed the lives of at least 5 million people. It was a true European apocalypse. Today, we are sitting on a doomsday machine. Our challenge is to stop it before it destroys mankind, either through global economic devastation or nuclear war. The solution provided by the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 to the atrocities of its time should be an inspiration for us to create a dynamic of peace through change of our way of thinking and our way of doing. Because it not only ended religious wars and established a new form of peace negotiations among states, as you can read in all history books, but more fundamentally, because it addressed agape, the Greek word for understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men in a secular sense. In his dialogue of Eurasian civilizations, Earth's next 50 years, Lyndon LaRouche tells us the implicit basis for knowledge of the competence of our choices lies not in the experience of the past, but on the competence of our experience of the future. The spirit of the peace of Westphalia is a reference for us precisely for that reason. It relates to a concept of mankind that did not yet exist at that time but which was nonetheless absolutely indispensable to conceive in order to bring to an end the mutual destruction occurring then within a lose-lose system. It is our challenge today, again, to see with the eyes of the future. 
to give you a sense of the atrocities of war, I show you here the hanging from a series of 18 engravings by Jacques Chalot, Calot, going back to 1633, called Miseries and Misfortunes of War, where he depicts how wartime violence and moral degradation concern civilians and soldiers alike. The sack of the city of Magdeburg is a terrible example of such atrocities. In one day, after the soldiers infiltrated the besieged city, only 200 of the 1,900 buildings remained undamaged, and around four-fifths of the city's 25,000 inhabitants were dead. It took them more than four years for negotiation between 1643 and 1648 to reach an agreement through various treaties, mainly in Munster and Osnabrück. This requires to generate international principles and laws between nation-states. It can never be a mere diplomatic arrangement within an existing system. How was it possible then? Because it did create a higher order of relations between nations and human beings. This is basically, again, why it shall be our reference today. On the opposite side, a vicious mormonger and global Britain addict like Tony Blair delivered a speech in Chicago in April 1999, repudiating Westphalia and upholding his conception of murderous liberal interventionism against nation-states. Let's then look carefully to the three main principles of Westphalia and how they lead to a win-win system of mutual development, which was then called Camaralism, Mercantilism, or Philadelphic. Article 1 states the core of the Westphalian philosophy, that there shall be a Christian and universal peace that each party shall endeavor to procure the benefit, honor, and advantage of the other. It is absolutely contrary to the principle of geopolitics, according to which each player tries to take the benefit of all the games at the expense of the others. Article 2 outlines, there shall be on the one side and on the other a perpetual oblivion, amnesty, and pardon of all that has been committed since the beginning of this trouble, in what place or what manner soever the hostilities have been practiced, in such a manner that nobody, under any pretext whatsoever, shall practice any acts of hostility and entertain any enmity or cause any trouble to each other. This is what it means to see with the eyes of the future and not through the never-ending and self-destructive grievances of the past. Then the treaty, before settling territorial claims, concentrates on addressing the economic ruin in which all were descending, identified as potential causes feeding the perpetual war dynamic, insolvent and illegitimate debt and financial claims are sorted out and settled, mostly by debt cancellation, Article 13 and 35 to 39, or negotiated rescheduling, Article 48. Article 37, in particular, states, contract exchanges, transactions, obligations, treaties, made by constraints or threats, and extorted illegally from states or subjects, shall be so annulled and abolished that no more inquiry shall be made after them. Article 40 adds, and yet the sums of money which during the war have been extracted bona fide and by good intent, by way of contributions to prevent greater evils by the contributors, 
are not comprehended herein. It is the spirit of the glass cigarette against what Roosevelt called the money makers and monsters. Let me add something briefly. It is with the same spirit that Martin Luther King was embodied, embodied the spirit in his famous political sermon delivered at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Loving our enemy, inspired by Matthew's gospel. He stressed, far from being a pious instruction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. And then he stressed, a second thing that an individual must do in seeking to love his enemies is to discover the element of good in his enemy. And every time you begin to hate that person and think of hating that person, realize that there is some good there and look at those good points which will overbalance the bad points. And then there is another reason why you should love your enemies, and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. What Martin expresses here in its deepest form is a principle shared by the best of all civilizations in our human history. When you are committed to improve a person by his change, by changing his or her way of thinking and acting, and therefore to improving yourself. Organizing the other in the spirit of the peace of Westphalia is our challenge. Inspired by Nicholas of Cusa, you have heard El Gazeplarouche challenging us to reach the level of the coincidence of the opposite. To make peace is not to solve things with a friend, but to organize an enemy at a higher level of thinking and doing than the level on which the conflict arose, from where it becomes possible to share in doing the good together. This is precisely where the peace of Westphalia leads to the blossoming of human creativity in the physical universe. Peace to be maintained and developed has to be based on an increasing human productivity associated with the discovery of new physical principles applied in the form of technologies, ensuring improving conceptions of social life for all. This was accomplished in both Germany and France under the contributions of the creative minds of the second part of the 17th century, in particular of Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. In France, around the Académie des Sciences, it is known under the name of Colbertist Mercantilist Economics. In Germany, it generated Camerolism, improvement of national government, simultaneously directed towards increasing the yields of agriculture, manufacturing, and social responsibility, long-term economic growth for the benefit of all. It is key to stress here that Leibniz, in his Novissima Sinica from 1697, developed the concept that the West and the East of the Eurasian continents should exchange the best of each, the commitment to science and technological development in the West and the principles of harmonious social development in China. Some exchanges of high value for both took indeed place, but the project as an impulsion towards universal unity was blocked. It is not precisely what has not been possible then, that is our Westphalian challenge now. I'm happy that the purpose of our conference is precisely that, unity without uniformization. Exchanging the best of all of us to secure peace through the common development of our human potential in the universe above and beyond what we know. 
Magnetic is Codex Julius Gentium, wrote, a good man is one that loves everybody, so far as reason permits. Charity is a universal benevolence, and benevolence a habit of loving or willing to love the good. Love then signifies rejoicing in the happiness of the other. The happiness of those whose happiness pleases us turns into our own happiness. Some would call it utopia. They are deadly wrong. Deadly, because the alternative today is to fall into the Thucydides trap, the geopolitical conception that the declining power is necessarily confronted by a raising one and that it means war. This is what ruins Sparta and Athens in the Peloponnese Wars. What threatens to ruin us now would be far worse because this time it is at the level of all humanity equipped with destructive financial algorithms and nuclear weapons. Theirs is a culture of death. Ours is a culture of life for the common good and the benefit of future generations. Just one word to conclude. Xi Jinping is a dedicated reader of Leibniz and the web pages Fund of Thinking, Fund of Thinking, is a platform for Chinese education to the future. What Europe has generated, including the Constitution of the United States, is the other reason why we are here. Let them be happy to be different. But with the same Westphalian thrust for unity to repair and rebuild our so immediately threatened world. Thank you, Jacques. And Jacques will be joining us in the question and answer session immediately following this panel. And I hope we'll put up on the screen the address, the email address, where you can send your questions. Uh, there it is. Um, the second presentation, and this is the third panel, if you're just joining us, on the security architecture and how to achieve it in breaking with the existing uh, war and financial disruption order presently facing. Uh, our next presentation will be by Diogene Sani, who is the president of the Pan-African League, Mimoja Congo, from the Republic of Congo. And his topic is, What Africa Expects from the World. Dear speakers, dear participants, dear guests, first let me thank the Chile Institute for inviting me on behalf of our party, the Pan-African League, Imoja, Congo, and of the Coordination des Partis Politiques Pan-Africanistes, of which I am the president, to speak at this important international conference. I also thank all the speakers for the quality of their interventions delivered before my own intervention. The title of this conference is Establishing a New Security and Development Architecture for All Nations, and the team I will address in this intervention is what can Africa expect from the rest of the world. Theme that we replace in the following way, Pan-Africanism and the geopolitics of war. The, Russia, the Russian-Ukraine conflict, which is currently tearing Europe apart and is eastern, on its eastern flank is a real concern because of the immediate and direct human drama it generates but also because of its indirect consequences at the economic level well beyond the area of confrontation. However, like any geopolitical crisis, most often a 
accompanied by war. It is first and foremost a consequence of the geopolitical permanence of the West, a system which for the first time since the Middle Ages has experienced one of the longest years of stability from 1945 to 2022 or 77 years. We tend to forget that the end of the Civil War, the hypocrisy of the victors led them to Okay, Kel is telling me that you can't hear very well, and I apologize for that. Just his accents or something. Let me go ahead and bring in Kelly. Uh, Kelly, was it really that bad? Because <laughs> I had I was piping it in different than the way I had the uh, original audio clip. It just wasn't very clear compared to how you and I are talking right now. So. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> So let's see. We can go to other news stuff. If that interests you. So was um, all of it? Yeah, because I mean, was all of it uh, pretty bad, or just uh, when, when the the foreign one started? The foreign guy was he was really hard to understand. So, but yeah, the uh, so kind of finish up where we were with the New York subway shooter, um, James. It says he was a supporter of Black Lives Matter and uh, black nationalists such as a Sada Shukar who killed a New Jersey state trooper in 1973 and fled to Cuba. So this guy obviously had uh, mental problems, Frank James. And he had multiple uh, misdemeanors, never a felony. Uh, Robert, what would you think if a gun control law. Felony, it's pretty clear now. You have a felony, you can't get a gun. All right, that's the law in the books. Okay. But if a person had, say, uh, pick a number, 10, 10 misdemeanors, which the difference between a misdemeanor and a felony, misdemeanor is uh, less than a year in jail. A felony is a year or more. That's a felony. So if, Robert, would you propose some type of legislation that says if you have 10 misdemeanors, you can't buy a gun? Um, honestly, it would depend what those misdemeanors were. To be honest with you, it just depends on what the misdemeanors were. I mean, if there was a, you know, comprehensive list of what they would be, but, uh, you know, I... I just think that making those type of laws would be a slippery slope. Yeah, it would be. Well, my my gut feeling is, say if somebody had 10 10 misdemeanors where he was assaulting somebody. Well, yeah, yeah, that would be the ones I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, if it was assault, I mean... Yeah, I mean, something like that, certainly, if you're assaulting people, that that would be different than, yeah, let's say, you know, shop, maybe even shop. I don't know about shoplifting, because that could be, that could go to armed robbery, but. Well, that, that's true, it, too. It, it yeah, you got to right. right, 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 yeah. So, but I'm, I'm talking, if somebody had 10 misdemeanors, where it was all 10 of them, and maybe they had 15 misdemeanors. He had 10 misdemeanors where he assaulted somebody physically without a weapon because you get into weapons, you could get into felonies. But uh, this guy has a consistent habit of hitting somebody because he doesn't, he, 
A, he doesn't know how to handle his problems and communicate, or B, he cannot accept the outcome of whatever is facing him. Okay, do we want this person to have a gun? I, I really doubt we should let people with physical assault, too, too many of them, because this is what Frank James had. He had multiple misdemeanors. And, of course, he had mental problems, too. Of course, you got to be careful about, oh, gee, you got mental problems. You can't uh, own a gun. Well, you know, that's one way of gun confiscation to subtle means. Um, and, and the Minnesota MMPI test, the psychological evaluation, um, they always find something wrong with somebody. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're incompetent to own a gun? But what if somebody has mental problems and multiple physical uh, assaults and convictions? Okay, fine. And anyway, but he's, he's, but then I'm getting into really dumb thinking because no matter how much uh, how many laws there are, somebody can always go out and find a gun. I mean, people are always going out and they're fine. Not not everybody does it, of course, but people find drugs. How long have we had that outlawed? Yeah, long time. Um, you know, cocaine, heroin, all the you know the heavy bad drugs. Um, people still get them. People can still get the guns. I, I don't know. I don't know. I would wish if they're gonna um, start taking guns away, that they would make it easier for honest, good citizens that have no criminal record, zero, okay? Hand out uh, concealed carry permits like you're handing out candy. Because what if somebody in that New York subway just happened to have a gun? Mm -hmm. You know, he pulls it out and starts shooting the guy. I mean, the guy shot like 30-some rounds. I mean, obviously, he's not a good shot because nobody died. Um, That's good, yeah. He's fortunate. Yeah, and the other... Yeah, he he has a little smoke bomb, and then he's just firing. Well, suppose I had my gun with me, and he starts shooting people. I'd pull my gun out. I'd take him out right now so fast, make people's heads spin. Um, So arm the good people. It's a deterrent for the bad guys. But in New York, where they have so much gun confiscation laws, nobody could defend other people. Anyway. Yeah, do you see uh, uh, the, the number – real quick, uh, Kelly, do you see the number for our, our guest on tonight? Uh, it's, uh, David, if you're ready, just push the one on your number dial there on your phone. Let me know you're ready to, to get in, and we'll get you in in a couple minutes uh, if you don't. Uh, let's talk about uh, the discussion on the conference uh, that we streamed here uh, on Saturday, uh, which is a you know, special edition, which sometimes we uh, do here. Uh, but if, if we don't see you know, the little hand go up, we'll just assume that, you know, a couple minutes that he's ready to uh, to come in. Uh, but do that by just pushing the one on your on your phone dial there, your dial pad. You know, let me know that, that you want to uh, – you're ready to get into the show. Again, I'll wait a couple minutes and then go, oh, there it is. So let's go ahead <laughs> and uh, welcome uh, from the Rich Organization, David Christie. Uh, thank you very much, David, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? I'm all right, Robert. How are you? Oh, doing all right, doing all right. Uh, I thought I was going to be off uh, work this Friday, but uh, my my work surprised me and 
And now I found out I'm not. But beyond that, I'm doing <laughs> right. I thought I was gonna. I thought tonight was my Thursday night, but that's not true. <laughs> but beyond that, I'm doing all right. Gotcha. All right. All right. I I hope I didn't jump into something or not jumping into the middle of a discussion. If there was something else going on, and I feel free to continue, or or I could give us a, a sense of the historic conference we just held. Uh, tell me how I should proceed. Well, that's what we're, you know, we were just, you know, going over some current events uh, where you're able to come in and we're just talking about, you know, they apprehended the guy in uh, New York who did that shooting on the subway. Uh, we're just talking about that and, you know, what what the possibilities of them trying to get, you know, gun laws passed. Now, of course, that's, that's when, when something like this happens, they always want to try to find ways to confiscate people's guns, even innocent people. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's a, it's a, uh, times are very interesting. We'll just leave it there. Um, well, I, I can just give a, an, a, a sense of, of uh, what we did at the conference. Um, yes, this was held on April 9th, uh, Saturday. And I'll try to keep these remarks relatively brief and just see what other thoughts people have. But um I think rather than give maybe an overview of a kind of a blow-by-blow of this person said that and, you know, so-and-so said this, um, I think it's important to start out by saying that at this conference, uh, it was intended to bring together uh, a a dialogue on establishing a new Treaty of Westphalia. Now, maybe some of you history buffs on the on the show or others might just know it just from from that reference, but in 1648 there was what was called the Treaty of Westphalia that ended the well the Hundred Years War and the Thirty Years War. Um, uh, uh, well, the Thirty Years War was 1618 to 1648, and this was religious warfare that had gripped Europe essentially organized by the various oligarchical factions that had dominated Europe at that time, the various uh, empires, the Venetians, the Habsburgs, you know, these, all these families that uh, many of whom are still around today uh, in terms of what they represent as financial powers uh, today, mainly operating out of the city of London but it was the same kind of crap that we saw during this re- period of religious warfare where the classic imperial dictator, uh, imperial MO, which is divide and conquer, get people fighting against each other and, uh, and do it on the basis of religious or other, you know, however people are indoctrinated, not to say that people who are religious are necessarily indoctrinated, but Obviously, if people are killing on behalf of Jesus or something, that I don't think Jesus is all that fond of that. Uh, not, that's not to say there aren't such things as just wars, but anyway, you get the point. They, these people were manipulated, and um, and so what happened in 1648 is they created the Treaty of Westphalia, which was to tell all the warring sides, forgive the past. We move forward based on the concept of the advantage of the other, uh, golden rule type concept, uh, you know, uh, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself kind of concept. 
And embedded within the Treaty of Westphalia was economic considerations, that you, that you actually had to bring nation, these nations of Europe that had been fighting each other together around econo- common economic development. Some of this was large-scale infrastructure and so on. So the relevance of uh, Ms. Helga Zeppel-Rouche, who is the founder of the Schiller Institute that held this conference, um, and, you know, a close collaborator with the LaRouche organization of which I'm the vice president of, and maybe people have seen the site or what, I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, the relevance of her raising this now is that we clearly have a world in war. Uh, we have, we are, you know, whether you want to say this is World War Three has already started uh, the you you know that, that's up for debate. I, it's it's pretty much started. The question is on what basis do we end it? And it has to be these same principles. You have to bring these nations together around common economic development. Now, the common economic development is already going on. Um, something that the Larouches, uh, that's Lyndon Larouche, and who is now deceased, but his, and his wife Helga Zepp Larouche. Uh, played a crucial role in in organizing after the fall of the Soviet Union, where there was a question of what would be the nature of the world, uh, given that the communist system had fallen and the Cold War dynamic had collapsed. Um, They put forward the concept of economic development, namely large-scale infrastructure that would connect east to west. Asia to Europe uh, through, you know, transportation and development corridors, really. So you'd have high-speed railroads from, you know, Europe all the way over to China, crossing through Russia, through the Central Asian nations, down through India, across Pakistan, Iran, up through Turkey, you know, hitting the, the nations of the Middle East. And you get people working together. That, that often is when people are building and see that their development is reliant upon their neighbor's development, it tends to promote peace. Uh, I think certainly Mr. Trump had a sense of this, um, you know, with his emphasis on, you know, economic development and uh, certain trade issues that, that he, he took on and so on, I, um, just as a reference point. But uh, but anyway, the point is the LaRouche has launched this perspective. It began to take hold in the late 90s. Much of the wars that we saw, whether it was Iraq or Syria or the various nations that were listed uh, for the project for the New American Century, which was the neocon grouping, which said there will not be any power sharing. It's going to be the United States and our allies, uh, namely the British and the European oligarchical families and so on um, uh, that would, uh, you know, prevent any other nations from developing economically. And so they launched all these wars, regime change wars and so on, which Mr. LaRouche had always said, this was not about Iraq. It wasn't about Syria. It wasn't about Yemen or Libya or whatever. It was this was all to set up the dynamic for a war eventually against Russia and China to prevent this economic development. So this is the war that we're actually facing. It has very little to do with Ukraine other than that Ukraine represents a bridge between Europe and Russia and really Europe and the, and the East in general. 
it's kind of a crossroads uh, transportation-wise. It's also huge agriculturally, and we're, we're now seeing the effects of the uh, collapse of agricultural production, uh, not just in Ukraine, but the whole trade uh, sanctions and so forth on Russia. We face a massive food crisis, uh, let alone all the hyperinflation uh, that faces our farmers uh, in the United States and other nations as well. Uh, but this is part of the the agenda of war and to prevent the the economic development of not just Asia, but for collaboration between the United States and Europe with Asia and, and Russia and and to create a new system. That's that's what the war is about, is preventing that. Now who is trying to launch this war? It is these financial the a financial oligarchy centered out of Wall Street and the city of London. It's the same families that go back hundreds, some of them, you know, literally go back thousands of years or trace their lineage back to the Roman Empire or the Venetian Empire, but that's what the British Empire was. It was not merry old England. You know, the English are our friends, the Scots are our friends, the Irish are our friends, or, you know, um, it's not the United Kingdom. It's these financial families that are seeking war to prevent a new system from coming into being. So that's the context in which Ms. Helgetsep LaRouche said, we convene this conference, we're going to get all these nations to say, enough with the war, let's discuss economic development, let's put this rotten financial system through bankruptcy, because it's bankrupt as hell, it has been since 2008, they just pumped more money in and uh, inflated the bubble beyond belief, that's where the hyperinflation comes from, it doesn't come from the Ukraine Russia conflict. It comes from the fact that they've pumped trillions of dollars of fake money into the system. So we held a conference. Uh, we had the uh, ambassador from Russia to the United States, Antonov. Uh, he was one of the you know guest speakers, very obviously very prominent speaker. Uh, but we also held there was people from India, from China, um, well from Italy, from European nations. We had some 65 nations. Uh, people from 65 nations watch it. Thousands others watch it live. Um, uh, so I, I think it was a, a success in one sense. And, you know, we had people had different points of view and you're coming from different cultures and different, you know, parts of the world and so on. But uh, the point is, is how do you convene a dialogue to say, yes, we have these differences, but what is the common aims of humanity as a whole and what are the sovereign interests of each nation, and how can those sovereign nations collaborate with other sovereign nations, not in a globalist, you know, imperial order that we've seen under Wall Street in London, but under sovereign nations who view the same concept, the advantage of the other is, uh, is to their advantage. So that's what we did. Um, and uh, it's just the beginning. We need more help organizing even more along those lines. And, and part of that, obviously, is we've got to make the breakthrough in the United States. It's, it's in rough shape right now politically. It's, <laughs> it could, some would probably say it's a lost cause, it's, you know, but, uh, but we the people run this country and we can intervene and shape the, the fight. And uh, we, have, we have natural law on our side. So 
Robert, I don't know. That was that, that's maybe not the best uh, uh, sense of the conference, but I wanted to at least situate it. I think probably the best thing for the conference is people just go watch it on the LaRouche organization site or the Schiller Institute, or maybe some people on this call have watched it. But um, uh, anyway, that, that's what I've got as a kind of an opening salvo. Well, one of the things to go to the you know, some details. Uh, and, and this kind of came towards the beginning of, I think what Helga De Larissa was talking about is, you know, and she she, she mentioned it. So there, there was con- a lot of concepts, you know, of course, because there's a lot of speakers. But one of the, you know, things I'd like to hear more of, and I guess in time we will, uh, you know, more details such as, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up about the, the Treaty of Westphalia because I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, listening, including myself, wasn't, I mean, I had a, a basis of what it was, but, you know, I guess the two things. One, you know, to start with is that what type of new uh, treaty would be uh, proposed, I guess, that, you know, per, perhaps if that's, just, that's just what it's looked for. And two, one of the things they also brought uh, up, Robert, and I think this brings hey, a Robert, lot of – real quick. Quick, sorry, you said what type of new what? I just didn't catch the word you. What, what type of what, what type of new you know what type of new agreement or or treaty as it were uh, is being proposed? You know, you say it's based off you know the Treaty of Westphalia, something kind of like that. Are you, are you talking about you know specifically you know just a new world conference where the the, the leaders of nations or what have you? Uh, get together and try to – we hear a lot about, you know, creating a new paradigm, new one, a new economic paradigm for one. Uh, so how are they proposed to implement, having that implemented? Well, at this point, um, as far as a specific treaty agreement, this this type of dialogue that Helga initiated – is really to establish the principles. Now, as far as specifics on the principles is, number one, we have to recognize that the transatlantic financial system is dead and gone. It's, it's uh, Trillions have been pumped in, as I mentioned, and uh, it's uh, the trillions that have been pumped in have also been pumped in while the physical economy is collapsing, and, th- and that creates inflation on its own you know when you when you're not producing enough and your very means of production are are being collapsed while you continue to print money uh that that is a recipe for disaster actually mr larouche referred to this as a triple curve collapse function that's something you can google and look at now that's as kind of a starting point is to at least recognize where we're at that the, the thing is gone now the specifics of what we do about it is the system has to be put through an orderly bankruptcy reorganization under the same type of uh, reorganization that we did in the early 1930s in the United States, which was called Glass-Steagall. Now, technically, it was called the Banking Reform Act of, I believe, 1933, uh, the two congressmen were Carter Glass and Henry Steagall. That's where you get the glass and the Steagall, Glass-Steagall. And what that did is, in part, the FDIC was set up on that. So you, you, you all know the FDIC. You walk into your bank, and it says your 
money is insured up to $250,000 in savings. That's, I, of course, I don't have that. I don't know how many of you do, but anyway, um, the FDIC <laughs> no, was no, created. No. <laughs> <laughs> the FDIC was created because the same kind of financial speculation where people lost their homes and lost their livelihood in the, in the meltdown of 2007-2008 was it was the same type of financial speculation of the Goldman Sachs and these types that, of course, they got bailed out and everybody else got screwed. Same thing happened with the, you know, preceding the stock market crash where J.P. Morgan and these guys were, you know, literally J, the original J.P. Morgan was running scams and screwing people over, and people didn't trust the banks. They'd rather have their money under the mattress. So Roosevelt and the people that organized the Glass-Steagall Act said, no, bring your money out from the mattresses, put it into the banks, let's circulate it in the communities. We'll guarantee your deposits, but we're not going to guarantee – deposits in banks that do financial speculation, you know, derivatives and mortgage-backed securities and these types of things that we see now. It was similar things back then. And so what it did is it created a firewall between commercial banks that were for the community, for the, you know, average lending and business lending and so on, and the investment banks. So that's the first thing. You've got to reestablish financial health through proper regulation, not the kind of insane regulation we see now where they prevent, you know, businesses from developing and succeeding and so on. But real regulation that just says the our government is not going to be backing up gambling rackets, you know, that's what Glass-Steagall did. Second, is what Alexander Hamilton did with a national banking conception, fundamentally different than how the Federal Reserve operates. Because the Federal Reserve is not a national bank. It's a it's sort of pretends like it is, but it's a conglomerate of the interests of the, of the top private banks. Uh, but instead, we go back to Hamilton's design, which is a national bank, uh, will be the conduit by which to fund infrastructure and, and other uh, relevant needs. Um, this is also Congress can pass, you know, pass bills by which to, you know, say what kind of things have to be built as far as large-scale infrastructure and then deposit the funds in the national bank to deploy for those projects, but deploy it also for the private uh, sector that, that comes up with the good ideas and the good manufacturing that, that money can be made available. And the national bank also, you know, would, would uh, lend to the commercial banks or the, you know, the community banks that would also be getting this money out. Uh, so that we go back to Hamilton's design where credit is uh, seen as not um, uh, being indebted to the past, but is, is extended to the future development of the nation. Uh, third component of that is you've got to put the, pro, you know, put the funds into the projects that are going to uplift the actual living standards of people. Uh, that mainly comes in the form of large-scale economic infrastructure, which is all falling apart in the United States. But it really has to be driven at the front edge, which brings us to the fourth point, which is LaRouche calling for a fusion uh, platform, a fusion energy platform, but really all the other aspects that fusion brings on board from lasers to breakthroughs. Uh, 
David. <laughs> I was thinking about mm-hmm. that helium free. You must have been reading my mind. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, helium-3. We've got a shit ton of it up on the moon. If we had a real lunar program to go mine it, liquefy it, or ga- we could turn it into a gas, and actually I guess it would be gas up there, and liquefy it, send it back to the Earth. We could power uh, fusion, uh, uh, you know, power plants. Um, there's supposedly they anticipate or they uh, hypothesize that there's about 10,000 years of energy supply in the form of helium three just on the surface of the moon. So you know that and there's all other aspects of the fusion platform, and including the immediate bridge of going just regular nuclear fission reactors, modular reactors. We have all kinds of new technologies that are totally safe and. Uh, could be effectively mass-produced in kind of like factory-like settings. So the point is, is it's not just repair some bridges and put some, you know, mud in some potholes or something like that. We're not talking just like repairing infrastructure that already exists. We're talking develop a new scientific and technological platform of, of development of, you know, infrastructure and so on. Um, that is to, at the front edge. And so those, those are LaRouche's four laws as a quick s- snapshot. That will also be the basis by which we say to other nations, like, what's the, what's the basis of this new system? What, what kind of projects are we going to do? You know, what kind of transportation systems are we going to set up? And, and, you know, so it's rather at this point not – you know, let's have a, another crappy global financial, you know, uh, global institution that has failed, you know, sit down and have these guys, you know, just jabber on at each other. But rather, let's define the principles by which a new system is going to be formed. So I, that's that what I, I'd say what we're, we're talking about, Robert, is, is kind of establishing the principles, not, you know, and then we get to the details as we go. Well, one of the things that, you know, that was mentioned was a, a new credit system. How much of that uh, can you tell us about? Well, I would say this. The, the notion of credit, you know, most people hear credit and they think of credit cards and they think of, you know, 24% usurious, uh, that's usury. You know, that's, that's where Jesus went into the temple and, flipped over the tables when usury was being practiced there, right? He was not real fond of that. In fact, actually many other world religions uh, condemn usury because it's, it's a form of debt slavery. Um, the point of particularly the way that Alexander Hamilton enunciated is, you know, what defines wealth? It's not gold and, and uh, things, it's processes right? It's, it's what are you doing now that ensures a better world coming beyond you? And, you know, certainly the individual comes up with the creative breakthroughs that allows for new technologies, you know, that's that, and, and therefore they have to have access, the entrepreneurs and so forth have to have access to the credit to get you know, put forward the good ideas, get the loans to build the manufacturing plant because they just came up with the new fission reactor or, you know, they like I mentioned, these small modular reactors. There's, you know, there's a lot of money that's going to be required to do that, and therefore you have to get the credit to do that. 
Um, so that's an example, you know, where you have an individual entrepreneur that needs that kind of credit. From Alexander Hamilton's perspective, it was you never uh, go into debt that you can't extinguish. And therefore, what is the kind of uh, debt that you're going into? Well, it's that which is your overall productive capabilities. It increases the productive power of labor. So certainly Hamilton had a strong emphasis on large-scale infrastructure at that time, you know, and later the people that employed Hamilton's method. This was the building of canals that we see, you know, coming um, from the East Coast to the Midwest, um, the, the beginning of the railroads. A lot of this is the same concept uh, was later developed with Abraham Lincoln's greenback policy, um, where he said, you know, the United States should not have to go begging to the Wall Street bankers to get money. Uh, instead, we issue credit. We extend that credit in things that we know are going to produce future wealth that, you know, and ultimately you can get certain things back through taxation and so on, but you can also just get it by an overall economic expansion. So, yes, there will be some level of taxation, but it's not the kind of taxation now where it just cripples people from, um, you know, cripples the small business layers and so on. It, it, you can set it up in a way that, it, that it's uh, equitable and uh, so on, but it's, but it's based on the future growth of the economy, and that's what a credit policy has to be oriented around. Um, so, you know, that looks like in terms of currency, because, you know, that is a big question right now um, of what should be backing up currencies. Right now we're just printing money up. There's nothing backing it up as a physical economic activity. Um, the U.S. dollar used to be strong because it used to, you know, we used to have a modern industrial economy. Um, back when the dollar became the kind of the global reserve currency. So uh, at that point, the dollar was reflected by the growth of the United States economy, the new scientific and technological advancements that we were bringing online, the space program, um, you know, the, the, the different uh, capabilities we had as exports and so on in, in terms of, you know, technologies and, and all of that. Um, right now, the dollar, as people are know, is see, is in free fall, uh, precisely because there's nothing backing it up. Now, some people would say, well, let's back it up with gold. Now, there's a certain uh, benefit of something like that, where you can use gold as kind of a, an agreed-upon value to settle foreign transactions and, you know, trade amongst nations if they see that, you know, in the end you can settle with the gold and they're, you know, likely to engage in, in contracts and business deals and so on and trade and all that. Um, but gold itself doesn't have value. It's, it's as, uh, I mean, it has value, but it doesn't have the kind of value that is needed now, which is we need to fundamentally upshift and create the conditions for future wealth generation for the coming generations. That's what actually defines value. LaRouche referred it to it as this concept as energy flux density, that you've got to be increasing the overall throughput um, in the case of energy. You know, we sort of see we've gone in the history of humanity from wood to coal to oil, you know, 
oil and gas to nuclear processes, time, less material is required to get the same energy or you get, you know, uh, more energy with the same material. That's LaRouche's idea of energy flux density. And that creates the ability for more people to live and live better and happier lives and grow more food and, you know, run modern uh, industrial and manufacturing capabilities, you know, that that's, so that's the direction that things have to go. And that defines value. Now we have a whole issue that's coming out now where people are saying maybe we should back up currencies with commodities and that might be fine, you know, for a sort of an interim of, of defining the value, but uh, in terms of trade relations, you know, an ability to say, well, you know, these are the metrics, uh, the commodities become the metrics to determine the financial values associated with currencies. But the more important thing that has to be established now is LaRouche's idea of expanding your energy flux uh, density capabilities, and that increases the potential relative population density, which was another term that he developed in his uh, science of physical economy. That is LaRouche's science of physical economy, where you know, the ability to sustain a certain amount of people per land is based on your scientific, technological, and even artistic and cultural contributions. You know, if you have people that can think because you have a culture that encourages them to think um, and, you know, develops their minds, that's a key part of the economy. We don't think about it that way often, but it's, it's true. You know, we do think of education and things like this as part of sort of soft infrastructure of course our education system sucks today but anyway so yeah. that, that's uh I, I, I would say that's a, kind of the basics of the credit policy okay one thing i've noticed uh you know people have a little confusion about when it comes to these these types of concepts is it's it's and i, I don't think it is but it sounds a lot of like Globalism, but you said earlier that it's not. So, how would you know this system be different? Than, and I've had you know conversations with, you know, with others, uh, you know, on this. I mean, you know, namely, you know, with, with Stewart. Uh, but I like to get your take on it as well. Is you know, how does this system different from what some fear uh, of a globalist system? And you you made an allusion allusion to it earlier this evening. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question because um, there there are uh, you know certain um, terms that uh, well let me let me put it this way to understand Rouche's view and the Rouche organization that I represent. What we understand as so-called globalism is a, a network of private financial interests who view their interests over and above the general welfare principle. Now, founding, the preamble of our Constitution, states this idea of the general welfare. Now, some people say, well, you know, they hear welfare, they think this is like handouts. 
No, it's, it's a concept that is actually rooted in natural law, and it relates to the other concepts that are also contained in our preamble. We have the, uh, essentially the three principles in that preamble of our Constitution is the general welfare, the question of posterity, so we secure that for ourselves and our posterity, and the concept of, of sovereignty. Now, the idea of sovereignty, because there's often sort of a, you know, some people, even what, you know, I, maybe Trump has a different idea of what America first means, but some people think America first is we don't care about the rest of the world and we just think about ourselves. Now, obviously the way things have worked is we haven't thought about ourselves, let alone anyone else. So that's probably a good first step is to think about, you know, the development of this nation. And certainly that's absolutely crucial, but the actual the, the the core idea of the con uh, of the concept of sovereignty is in the Declaration of Independence, and you'll see this with the idea of the the consent of the governed, uh, which is contained again in the in the Declaration of uh, Independence. Now, this idea of the consent of the governed actually goes back uh, uh, in the 1300s. There was a, a figure named Nicholas of Cusa. And he, he discussed this idea really as the formation of the modern sovereign nation state. And Kuz's idea was essentially, uh, if we are all equal in the eyes of the creator, imago viva day, you know, um, you know, whatever your idea of the creator is, we don't, I'm not saying it from a religious standpoint. Uh, even if you're not religious, you could look at it as just the, the sanctity of the human individual that we are equal in one sense. We all have different talents. There are certain, you know, people have problems or whatever. So you, you, it's not equal in a, in a simple literal sense. It's equal that, you know, everybody should be given their potential to develop. And therefore, if we're all equal, why the hell should some, you know, oligarchical bloodline, you know, royal, royal, uh, the kings and the queens and the dukes and the barons, because you're passed on through her hereditary. That was how an imperial system was designed. And we said, no, the, uh, and Cusa and, and the people that developed the American constitution said, no, it, it is based on this idea of the consent of the governed. In other words, uh, if you're going to have a form of government for the future and to honor those that have come from that gave you your life from the past, which is essentially the idea of a government, is a society organized around, you know, future development, then that the the validity of that government should only be uh, the consent for that should only be given by those who are governed by it of, of the people, by the people, for the people, you know, type concept. That's how uh, Lincoln referred to it. Um, and so that is the, the basis of sovereignty. And what the oligarchical systems say is no, it's, it's us, it's our financial power, it's our families, it's our, you know, our network. And we frankly like to exist off of looting and pillaging the peasant class. You know, we like feudalism. That, that's what, you know, people talk about, oh, we're going socialist, we're going communist, we're going fascist, you know, all these different terms. Well, the root cause of all those different isms was basically feudalism. It was zero growth economic activity, a kind of peasant mentality, 
you know, you, you weren't allowed to get out of your station in life. You had to just keep your nose to the grind, you know, grindstone and, you know, that, that kind of concept. And so the point is these globalist systems now, which is based on speculation and looting and running wars and pitting nations against each other, that's what globalism to me means. Now, does that mean that we don't lose other nations? Absolutely not. This nation, our nation, always had the idea that we would, uh, you know, go forward with the shield of liberty, um, you know, but if, if we had to bring the sword out, uh, to ensure that, uh, you know, na- nations and, and people weren't trampled upon by this uh, oligarchical system, then we would do that. Uh, but it, it was the John Quincy Adams concept, you know, you don't go in, in broad of, uh, uh, you don't go abroad and seek of monsters to destroy, you know, you don't go on imperial rampages, rather you export and you collaborate with other nations based on developing them, uh, helping them uh, get out of poverty, and, and view each other as, as collaborators in the, in the future. And, you know, so th- there are means by which that actually occurs. It's not just kind of like nice things to say. There, there are literal projects that are required in, in terms of promoting trade and utilizing uh, other uh, nations who have resources, can can be exporting them, they can be exporting the finished products, we can, you know, have that kind of global trade, but it has to be based on this idea of mutual benefit versus an oligarchical elite, which sits on top of it, and meets at the Davos, you know, World Economic Forum, and so on, and has their various world domination meetings, uh, you know, uh, Bilderbergs, and all these types that do their thing. Uh, so that is obviously not the globalism we are promoting. It is the original core of what we had as a foreign policy, which was we wanted to ensure that other nations could have the same kind of economic development that we afforded and that we would help them secure that and we would defend them from other imperial interests that seek to loot them and, and destroy them. So I don't know if that answers, but that's at least a uh, you know, kind of an overview of how I would look at it. No, no, certainly, no, that certainly answered it. I, you know, I appreciate that because, you know, I know, you know when I'm you know, reading some articles and, and listening to things, some of it kind of rings kind of, you know, globalistic, so I'm glad you made the differentiation there. And then, you know, some, you know, some, you know a lot of the concepts are, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with, some are new. But one of the concepts that was brought up during the, at least the part that we, we streamed here uh, was there, there was a couple of speech, uh, speakers, at least one in particular. I, I can't remember which one it was, but they you know they bring up a lot about you know sustainable de- development and keeping um, you know the, and I kind of I mean I, I agree we got to protect the planet, but it almost sounded like you know gr- you know what we have here is Green New Deal kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. So we're talking about development, yeah. and you know, cause, you know, but I heard that some people are trying to pass, you know, green, a new green deal uh, type of, uh, you know, not legislation, but you know, kind of put but those economic systems, and it's actually the hinder production. Can you have what people would call sustainable production, 
and as well as well sustainability and production at the same time. Mm-hmm. No, it's a it's a good question. It's actually something that came up, you know, in the in the discussion we had in the organization following um, following the conference uh, because at uh, one point one of the speakers I forget who mentioned something about you know we have to defend Mother Earth and so on and um, now one of the things that Helga mentioned is that when you're dealing with people from different cultures they have different ideas of what relationship to the environment is um, on the one hand it can be uh, certain religious outlooks I apparently I don't know much about it but you know in Africa uh, the idea of relationship to the earth and, and uh, you know, food and, and uh, uh, it has a different kind of connotation. Um, the other aspect is, is when you're talking about pollution, which, you know, that, that's real. We, we need to deal with pollution. Um, right. You know, nations like China, India, et cetera, that, that means something different to them. Now, so she that to say that you have to kind of there is a problem that we have which is you know generally referred to as nominalism I'm not saying you have the problem of nominalism but there are terms that people use but you have to get at what the idea is behind it now as far as our uh, view and Mr. LaRouche's view uh, since <laughs> since a long time, 50, over 50 years, he has always viewed, and the LaRouche organization uh, shares this view, that the so-called green uh, environmentalist agenda has very little to do with the environment um, in, in terms of their care of, uh, you know, animals or, or uh, ecosystems, you know, the Amazon, all these kind of things. They don't really care about this stuff. In fact, I'll give you just one sort of simple example. The, the, the founder of the World Wildlife Foundation, um, which is that little panda bear that I'm sure everybody's seen their stickers around or whatever, the, the World Wildlife Fund or Worldwide Fund for Nature, I forget all the acronyms it's gone by. The founder of that back in the 60s was Prince Philip. Uh, Prince Philip just passed away and rotting in hell, I assume, um, the husband <laughs> of Queen Elizabeth. Um, he was the, the founder of this. Uh, somebody with, you know, the, well, the royal family in general was, was uh, big backers of Adolf Hitler. In fact, there's some of you can find it, but there's a little video of the Queen of England. Probably, uh, she was probably eight or nine or ten years old, whatever she was. So I'm not going to hold her too much to this, but she's running around the backyard with the family doing the Heil Hitler uh, back in the early days of Adolf Hitler because the British monarchy supported them. Now, for Prince Philip, he doesn't care about white rhinos. In fact, he poaches them. He's poached, you know, numerous endangered species on his little game hunt throughout Africa. He doesn't care about the animals. What he uses the, the World Wildlife Fund and the environmentalist movement in general for is population reduction. Now, the first found, one of the first, I, I forget if he was president or just one of the chapters or whatever it was of the World Wildlife Foundation was a guy named Julian Huxley. 
Now Huxley was, while he was, you know, a top level guy at the World Wildlife Foundation back in the 60s, he was also the president of the British Eugenics Society. <laughs> and they literally were saying, oh, you know, Hitler sort of gave eugenics a bad name, you know, race uh, superiority and and population uh, management and all this. So therefore, well, let's create environmentalism and we'll convince people that the world's overpopulated, therefore you have to submit to our globalist agenda. And in fact, I would just, as a brief, uh, we have a report that just we just put out um, uh, earlier, well, uh, I forget exactly when, it is called Stop Global, Global Britain's Green War Drive. You can get that on the LaRouche organization site, Stop Global Britain's Green War Drive. And what this goes through is how the, the imperial forces are using the so-called green thing, mainly around this fraud called global warming, right? The idea that all this carbon going into the air and it's creating global warming and it's a greenhouse gas, total scientific fraud. That's, that's another topic on its own, but uh, I'll just assert that that's, uh, will soon be known as one of the greatest hopes in the hu course of human history, but they're using it to shut down carbon. Well, what is carbon? I mean, it's the basis of life. It's, you know, it's everything. Uh, but it definitely is fossil fuels, and they want to shut that down because they want to prevent the development of Asia, of Africa, the development of South America, and frankly, the global development because they want to collapse global population. So that's what the green thing really is about. Now, when other people talk about sustainability, and I'm not saying like uh, there aren't problems with people who are speaking on this conference, or I'm not saying there are, and I'm also not saying there are. I don't know them very well, so I can't say when somebody says sustainability, are they talking about the agenda, you know, 2030 and the UN, uh, which is all this uh, same uh, Davos crowd, you know, have infiltrated and. Um, or, you know, like what China does. China will talk about sustainability and how they're going to go green and be carbon-free and all that. But how are they doing it? Well, they're doing it with nuclear power. <laughs> they're doing it with so-called clean coal. And they're reducing carbon emissions, but they're doing it through advancements in science and, and technology. And they'll say all day long, oh, yeah, yeah, we agree with you on the green thing. But, you know, they're clearly not doing what the British Empire and the uh, globalist crowd wants, which is to shut down uh, production and shut down the economy so that we can kill off billions of people and go back to feudalism. Uh, the Chinese are saying, yeah, yeah, we'll do all that shit, but we're, we're going to do it with, with advanced scientific capabilities. So there are, it's a varied field for what people say and mean and do and all that. And it's, it's, not easy to discern when you're watching it and you're saying, what the hell is this guy talking about Mother Earth and sustainability? Is this, you know, am I in with a globalist uh, trap? I thought I was in with people that were fighting this, you know, stuff. And uh, so it's, it's nuanced and you have to, that's actually part of what Helga addressed is she said, look, you got to realize we're dealing with people who are coming from all these different cultural backgrounds. We have to establish the principles by which we come to agreement and not get, you know, necessarily sidetracked into the terms that people are throwing around. 
Um, but also be clear that we have to, you know, be clear on what the actual problems are and what the, the, the British Empire intends with the green thing versus what other nations might, uh, you know, agree on pollution and stopping pollution. You know, it's a, it's a nuanced thing. But, uh, but that's at least what we mean is, is the green thing is a scourge and a fraud and it is designed to collapse global population. Um, and, and including eventually us too. It's not just the uh, uh, poorer nations or the, um, you know, for some of these guys, they are Nazis. They do believe that it should be white, white race and so on. Uh, and far, as far as the monarchy and these uh, London crowd goes, you know, and, um, but eventually it will be us too, you know? So anyway, that's, that's my take on the green thing and, and uh, perhaps what you heard is is uh, is just a varied uh, sense of what people mean by those terms, but we have to establish what the principles have to be. And I'm glad you brought up China because that's, of course, a lot of people, and frankly, including myself, uh, are, are very concerned with with, with China. Uh, you know, some think that you know, with the, the the Belt and Road, and then also you know what they're doing technologically. You know, they are building their military up. Uh, they are weaponizing space. Uh, they are, you know, they are you know, going to the moon. They're, they're hoping to get there before the United States does. And, and the concern is, and this is what my concern is, uh, is if you look historically, uh, and I've said this many times, you know, on the show, you know, I spoke to Stuart on this, and, you know, with the people who basically, you know, and I'll just use it historically for, for example, a brief overview, I mean, you had your – you know, you mentioned the Romans earlier. Uh, you know, you had the Greeks and Romans, you know, when they had the, the military superiority on the ground, but the vast armies and skilled armies and the technology of war, that, you know, of war those days, they were the, the preeminent, uh, you know, power of, of the globe. And then, of course, you had England who, you know, took over the seas and were able to control trade routes and, and you know, warfare on the seas. Well, then, you know, that's when you see, you know, the dominance of, of England. Uh, and then when the United States, you know, I'm, I'm, this is very basic, you know, the way I'm describing this, uh, but then when the United States mm-hmm. basically had air superiority, you know, they be- basically became the preeminent, you know, mil- preeminent military power and then are built up on our, our nuclear arsenal. And so the next, uh, I guess, preeminent place to be is space. And, and China is, you know, they're, they're on the front of that right now. And a lot of people, again, including myself, because, I mean, they are militarizing space, and they do want to get certainly to the moon first and harvest that helium-3 that we mentioned earlier. And a lot of people are concerned that, you know, are they are they on board with what, you know, the Little Roots organization would like to see, you know, be this new paradigm, or is this just a way for they to become, you know, the new world power, the new hegemon, you know, the new preeminent power of the globe for here until, you know, whenever the next thing comes along, which Mhm. No, yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. There's certainly a lot of concern, you know, what what is China doing? Um people have similar concerns of of where where Russia, you know, stands and so on. Um if uh if if people one or the other or not the other in the case of Russia and China uh, if that's flipped for you or what, um, I would just point out 
just partly because this is a very relevant thing for global uh, policy and so on right now. Russia and China are absolutely uh, on are are committed their their relationship. They view it as a pillar for a new system, and and in a sense, not just a, a new system like a, something that has never been seen before, but a revival of of some of the best. Now, as far as what China goes or what China is up to, you know, on the one hand, I, I can't tell you the the uh, uh, backroom dialogues in the in the CCP, you know, the Communist uh, Chinese Communist Party, not there. So I, I can't say exactly what they intend because I know it personally. But if you look at it. Times, uh, Mr. LaRouche would often say the it, it's the effects. You have to look. You have to look. You're always looking at shadows. So you have to figure out what's generating the shadows. Now, what a lot of people are concerned about when they think of the, the Chinese Communist Party is they're thinking of Mao Zedong. You know, they're thinking of the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, where you know they would run around and uh, you know, the Communist Party goons would go crush the glasses of the intellectuals and smash violins and, you know, and force everybody to march around and go work in the fields with your hands and not have farm implements. You know, I'm, I'm sort of exaggerating on the, what, what the China looked like in the 1960s, but it wasn't good under the cultural revolution. In fact, it was so bad that it was of course overturned. Now, one of the guys that overturned it is Deng Xiaoping uh, now, Deng Xiaoping. Um, so this was, you know, he, he was he was part of the grouping that that was involved in the overthrow of, of Mao and the so-called Gang of Four. I know some of this history, but not in depth. You can all refer. I refer you all to Executive Intelligence Review for some of this history. Um, EIR Magazine. That's Larouche's flagship journal. There's a search function there. You can just type in anything and get all kinds of fun articles that pop up over the past 50 years. But anyway, Deng Xiaoping and China in general begins to reject the, the axioms of the Cultural Revolution, which was a peasant revolt. It was a peasant concept of, of communism where we're all just going to like eat dirt and hang out in the, in the mud, you know. Uh, Deng Xiaoping said, no, we're going to develop. And actually one of the first trips he made to the United States, he went to NASA. He went to both NASA uh, in Houston and, uh, and also visiting the Boeing facility in, uh, in Seattle. Point reason I reference that is if you actually look at what he initiated for scientific and technological advancement for China, uh, this became the new direction for China, a fundamental 180 degree, just, just opposite direction of Mao Zedong and the uh, cultural revolution orientation. Um, now, what I can say from that point is that we began to intersect by we, I mean, the LaRouche organization, specifically Lyndon and uh, Helga uh, LaRouche. Uh, they were, they began organizing in China around their idea. Not, it wasn't China's idea of the Belt and Road. I mean, yes, it was, because of course the Silk Road, that's, thousands of years ago, you know, <laughs> you can't, we can't say it was our idea. Uh, it was probably China's first, you know, given that they were one of the terminus routes of the ancient Silk Road. Uh, 
Um, and, and then, of course, the modern founder of China, uh, Sun Yat-sen, so this is early 1900s, uh, when they overthrow basically British warlords or the British uh, system, which which had, you know, run uh, China through their warlords and through their financial uh, system. Remember Hong Kong? That's British. Shanghai, right. British. Hong, Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank, HSBC, maybe at, you know they're more prevalent on the East Coast and, and coastal cities, but it's one of the biggest banks on the planet. HSBC ran the opium wars against China, the British, the British East India Company Bank. It was the British Empire. And so, uh, Deng, I'm sorry, uh, 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 just all of a sudden blanked on his damn name, the, the founder of modern China, uh, Sun Yat-sen, he basically organized China together to kick out the British and and created the the modern china now then his grouping got in a fight with with china or sorry with the communist grouping and eventually they were kicked over to taiwan uh, the later followers of sun yat-sen around chiang kai-shek and so on they were kicked over to taiwan that's that's another story Mm -hmm. but sun yat-sen was a devotee of abraham lincoln he was actually a christian just as a side note and not that that there's, I think, a certain symbiosis between Confucius and uh, uh, the teachings of Confucius and Christianity. In fact, Ben Franklin said that Confucian is, you know, the Confucius teachings was a, a certain um, moral code that w- that could be the basis of a of a modern society. Um, anyway, that, that anyway, but I'm just saying, for what it's worth, Sun Yat-sen was a Christian. He was actually in Hawaii. He was uh, trained by a number of people. Um, well, there's missionaries there. That's kind of where he began his route into Christianity. But he was enamored by the American system, by what Hamilton represented. His uh, his memorial looks it's almost a replica of Abraham Lincoln's memorial. And on the side of it, in Chinese, of the people, by the people, for the people. There was we. We used to have stamps during World War II when we were allied with China and Russia to defeat the Nazis. Uh, we had stamps uh, which had Sun Yat-sen on one side and Abraham Lincoln on the other side, with of the people, by the people, for the people in English, and the and the Mandarin on Sun Yat-sen's side. You know, postage stamp. You can look it up online and just see it. But uh, but anyway, that that's that's the tradition that Sun Yat-sen and the economic development. Sun Yat-sen had a plan for the development of railroads, of connecting those railroads in China through Manchuria and across the Trans-Siberian Railroad, um, which was just, you know, being built and recently built by the time Sun Yat-sen and his grouping came to power in China. Um, Again, early 1900s, you know, late 1800s. So a lot of what China is doing around the Belt and Road Initiative is going back to Abraham Lincoln through the eyes of Sun Yat-sen. So that's what they're doing. That's their tradition or their their historical vantage point. But LaRouche and his wife, you know, they organized around the modern version of this and why this was uh, crucial, especially after the fall of the of the communist system and and so on, is that you had to bring East and West together around development. Otherwise, if you let the British run roughshod, they were just going to 
you know, chop brush up into a bunch of pieces and steal their resources. They did this in the early 90s. The IMF called it shock therapy, and they went in and they brought in all these oligarchs, they called them, but they were really just Russians that they shipped off to the London School of Economics to learn British free trade methods and then came back and put them in charge of former industrial uh, plants and and uh, state-run enterprises that used to be Soviet. Now they were so-called under the free market, and they were just looted by the British with, with the help of these oligarchs. Same thing happened in Ukraine and so on and so forth. So LaRouche said, no, you got to bring nations together, defend their sovereignty, and, and unite people based on these common economic development policies. Now, can I guarantee that that's exactly what China is doing because I sat and listened to the backroom meetings of the CCP? No. But can I look at the shadows of the ancient history of China, their commitment to development before the Cultural Revolution, the Mao Zedong period, and see that there was a different China then and that it appears they're moving in that direction now? And moreover, given the, the kind of dialogue that LaRouche and his wife had with people in China, Russia, India, is this a part of what is now shaping up right now? Well, one way to look at it is we're the biggest targets of NATO right now, of the imperial forces, the, the London Wall Street directed forces, the biggest targets right now, not just Russia. Russia has the nukes, so they're number one on the list. But it's ultimately China, and you'll see that all over the place. You know, George Soros comes out and attacks China, and then the neocons come out and attack China. And you say, well, isn't that right and left? No, it's it's all the same crowd. They don't they left and right doesn't mean jack anymore. And so um, I sometimes you uh, know somebody who they who they are by who their enemies are, and. Um, given the relationship between Russia, China, and India, and also by rejecting the green thing. You know, they might say, yeah, 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 green, green, green. We'll build some nuclear power plants to go green. Um, they rejected the diktat by the British, Prince Charles, uh, the heir to the throne, at the COP21, uh, COP26 meeting in Glasgow back in November, where they said, you know, we're going to, uh, go green and force all these nations to do it, no carbon and all that. Well, guess who didn't show up? Or if they showed up, they basically gave an FU uh, to the uh, conference was Russia, China, and India. And that's the target of this war. So, so you know, again, I don't expect people to put up a Chinese flag on their wall and say, you know, start learning Chinese because they you know, whatever people, I, I, I wouldn't, I actually should probably should learn Chinese. We probably should all learn more languages just because that's a good thing to know as many languages as you can helps you think better. But, uh, but the point is, is, you know, you don't have to uh, admire, you, you know, agree with their political structures, their religious structures, their cultural outlooks, you know, that's their country. Let them do what they want to do. I don't think they're doing an imperial thing. It's not really in their nature. They built a great wall around themselves to, you know, sort of keep people out. However, they do have a sense that it is better to have peace and trade with nations than this kind of imperial warfare. And if you look at what the kind of economic development and the sort of credit and uh, projects that they're extending throughout the world, whether it be Africa, whether it be collaborative uh, partnerships in South America, 
it's it's not the British globalist model. It's not the uh, so-called free trade, as they like to call it. Of course, it's not free, but anyway. Um, so that that would be uh, perhaps a long-winded answer, but uh, you know, it's certainly the China question is a big one, and it's you know you have to, you have to kind of look at the historical aspects of it and. And again, look at uh, what's generating the shadows um, to get a sense of what the, you know, the principles that are at work. So this is kind of, um, oh, maybe a, you know, just a, a, an academic think tank kind of question. Um, so what do you think it's going to take for, you know, this new paradigm, this new system, to actually, you know, be accepted? Uh, I mean, what do you think has got to happen before that? You know, some people say, well, the only way that, you know, the, the world's ever going to unite, not in a globalist way, but in the way that I think you guys are proposing, is for aliens to attack us or something like in, you know, independence. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but barring an alien attack, even though we have been seeing a lot more uh, things in the news about, you know, UFOs and things of that nature, and I mean, I personally think I, I may have seen some, and same with my sister, actually, not that long ago, um, we got a little video she sent me with, with this was interesting. But anyway, uh, not to get too far off topic, uh, but, I mean, what do you, I mean, do you think it's going to have to take us down there getting close to World War Three for something uh, of what, you know, the Schiller Institute's proposing uh, to, to have more people pay attention and, and give it, a, a, you know, some eyes to look at and possibly look towards implementing? Yeah, uh, well, those are real. Uh, however, they actually LaRouche used to say, I, I believe in miracles, but only the ones that I create. <laughs> or, you know, not him personally, but in general, that's how miracles are created, is people work hard and, and ideas do run the world um, to know um, I've somewhat stressed this idea of, of principles versus the kind of uh, predicates or, or uh, I, you know, principles versus things, you know. Ideas shape, shape the world for better or for worse. And at this kind of a moment, everything is breaking down. You know, all these institutions are breaking down, some of which have had, you know, good potential rules. I'll, I'll just give you one example. The United Nations, the way that Franklin D. Roosevelt initiated the establishment of the United Nations and the IMF and World Bank were to be the, the grounds for, number one, peace, which is why he set up the United Nations Security Council and somewhat paradoxically brought China in. China at that point was not an you know it was not an economic powerhouse. It was a big nation population wise, but you, you know as you could say, importance was not uh, was not of importance. But Roosevelt saw the direction that they could go and actually said, "You will be on the Security Council, as will Russia, as will the British, the U.S. and and France." They had the uh, eventually later it was the the question of nuclear weapons and was a significant aspect of the Security Council. <clears throat> but you might ask, why would Roosevelt, who was an American, 
work with what later became, you know, under the Cold War dynamic, uh, you know, set up the UN Security Council to have Russia and China on there. Well, at that time, number one, we were allies with Russia and China, and uh, they were, you know, allies with the British and, and uh, France, at least the nations of those, uh, uh, the, the nation states, not the financial interests that, you know, manipulate and try to run those nations. Um, we were allies at the time, uh, but it was also very much, it, Roosevelt knew very clearly that if you did not uh, put a check, uh, a, a counterweight to the British, that they would sabotage things and we'd be in World War III again, or they'd be supporting the fascist movements again. Um, so the point is, is that that as an institution, I'm kind of, that was a long segue to get into the point that institutions are falling apart. Now, as the UN was founded, it was to be a bulwark of stability, but it was to be the forum for the end of the colonial era. And it was the IMF and the World Bank were supposed to be the conduits for credit to go for the development of the nations of Africa and the former colonial states. Roosevelt hated colonialism. He fought Churchill on this tooth and nail. Um, and so that's what the UN was supposed to be. It's been subverted. It's largely been subverted by the, the imperial forces. But right now, it's really threatened. There's talk, you know, if, kick, if you kick Russia out of the Security Council, which has been floated recently, they were just kicked out of the human rights uh, thing, which, you know, Trump brought us out of the human rights thing. It's not the most crucial body or, you know, but it's more, you know, if the direction is to kick, the, kick Russia out of the UN Security Council, you would have the United Nations implode uh, and cease to exist. Not that it's a great, it's not being used for great things right now. Uh, it's been used to justify and sort of hammer other nations to go into these, you know, endless wars and so on. Uh, but if it ceases to exist as an institution, you know, you, you got a wild global situation because you don't have a forum by which if there's sanity that seeps back in to say, let's sit down at the damn table and figure out how to resolve this. Um, so the point is institutions are crumbling. Financial institutions are already gone. They're just, they have a psy war campaign to make people think that there's actually some credibility in these big banks. Everything is crumbling. And at that moment, if you have the power of ideas that says, what the hell are we doing? Why, why have we gone down this road? What are the new ideas that, that and, and also uh, the best of the old, if you want to talk it that way, but what are the principles by which we sit down and reestablish a new system? And those ideas can spread like wildfire, even in the, in the midst of this massive censorship operation that we see with the social media and the media in general. It's not the media at this point. It's crazy to have, you know, just all these CIA hacks sitting on CNN, like it's some sort of credible news outlet. And that goes for all of them. (laughs) Fox is all that much better. You got some good ones on, you know, some of them, you know, you have some good anchors or whatever, but, but, you know, ideas can spread rapidly and we can get profound transformation, but we've got to do the organizing. You know, we've got to know the ideas. We've got to know the policies. We've got to know the, uh, you know, concepts. We've got to recruit people to it. 
um, uh, you know, recruit people to what we're doing. That doesn't mean, you know, that there's different ways to do that. It doesn't mean you have to like, oh, I, I'm, you know, only with the LaRouche organization. There's a lot of uh, organizations that, um, you know, work in uh, collaboration or we work in collaboration, we work in collaboration together. Um, but certainly the ideas of Mr. LaRouche and what Helga are doing these are, you know, this is these are the critical ideas that can pull the world together, and uh, that is what is needed, uh, certainly at this point. So maybe uh, well, like hard to, work creates the miracles. <laughs> well, I want to get back a little bit because uh, I've been wondering this myself. Is when it comes to you know what's going on in the Ukraine with you know with the Russian, uh, you know, I'm going to call it as I see it. Uh, you know, a Russian invasion. I mean, they have entered into a sovereign nation. Um, where the hell is the United Nations peacekeeping force? I mean, what the, what the hell good are they? I mean, have they ever been any good yeah. at all, frankly? But I mean, where, I mean, like that song, where are you now? You know, I mean, I mean, there's nothing. You would think that this would, if there was anything, at least recently, a reason for the UN peacekeeping forces to come in. I would imagine this would be it, but they're, they're nowhere to be seen or even heard from. Yeah, well, fortunately, that entity and a whole slew of NGOs around, you know, humanitarian needs, you know, even, um, well, Red Cross and so on. Well, not there's different there's different entities of these humanitarian organizations that often have been used as a as a kind of cover to to run weapons and so on. And so some of these things aren't so trusted. I don't think the Russians would necessarily uh, trust that either. Um, as far as what you know, when and how the uh, UN peacekeepers are are deployed. Um, you know, there there are certain rules of engagement around war and, and what kind of conditions they can enter into and um, not taking sides and all these kind of things. So this that case this case may not be exactly uh, relevant for that. But the but the point is the United Nations. You know, it has become uh, in, in a lot of these nations that have gone along with with the con- condemnation of Russia's actions. Um, which isn't as many as people think. There was, whatever it was, 90-some nations that voted to condemn Russia. Uh, I believe it was uh, 20-some, maybe 30-some that didn't. But then there was a whole slew of nations who abstained from voting and who also uh, just didn't show up to vote, which is kind of another way of diplomatically saying we're not going along with this. That if you added the vote, the nations that voted uh, to not condemn Russia or not didn't vote to condemn Russia, uh, abstained or just didn't show up, it's actually a majority. Now the point is, is do they? Do, does that mean that those nations, or or should we, you know, say, oh yeah, we we love war and we're glad Russia invaded? No, we're not glad Russia invaded. Russia invaded because they were pushed to a wall. Remember, back in December, and really back for 30 years, <laughs> Russia has been decrying the expansion of NATO eastward towards their border, 
which they were given guarantees, and there's a lot of, oh, we never said that. Bullshit. The the people that uh, negotiated the terms of the dissolution of the Soviet Union from the British, from the U.S. State Department and and other security aspects, uh, they did give guarantees that there would not be NATO expansion. And over the 30-year process since that time, we've seen five waves of NATO expansion. Um, And there was a red line at which Russia said, if Ukraine becomes a part of NATO, that is a red line for us. And back in December, Putin said there will be military technical response. So what happened was, is forces amassed on the Donbass border, which have, maybe you guys know all this, I won't go into too much detail on it, but uh, Putin saw that the attack was coming to so-called reclaim the the breakaway uh, republics of Donbass and and Lugansk, or uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, the Donbass region and saw those uh, troops massing. But at the same time, uh, Zelensky, the, the president of Ukraine, got up in front of the Munich Security Council, not only was talking about joining NATO, but then said that Ukraine was going to go for a nuclear weapons program. <laughs> so do you want to, do you really think that that's not going to provoke Russia, who just told you that just a couple months ago, you know, before the invasion happened back in December, he said, You'll get a military technical response if you join NATO, um, uh, uh, and then you're going to talk about nuclear weapons, and you're not going to expect that Putin is going to do what he said he is going to do. Putin does what he says he's going to do. You know, if you like it or whether you like it or not, that's true. Um, so anyway, that is uh, what happened, and the situation uh, is where it is. But uh, unfortunately, at this point, I, I think that it's it's going to have to be resolved uh, militarily. I don't say that uh, in the hopes that maybe somebody comes to their senses in Ukraine. I'm sure there are people in Ukraine that do not want this war to go on, would like it to be resolved diplomatically, but it is being run uh, effectively by MI6 and CIA and, and foreign intelligence crowd. It's, it's basically an occupied country by a force, uh, NATO and the extension of it, that have deemed the existence of Russia and China eventually uh, that that can't be and they're going to crush it. And and so it's up to us uh, that if we were the ones that are going to create the peace by organizing a new system and uh, political revolution in the United States to to do that. Well, that's, I mean... Uh... I know it was a long, you know, quite some time ago, but my question is that is on hindsight, would would they they say because some people are equating with this at the Bay of Pigs, uh, and I mean, would it would it would it have been right for the United States to invade Cuba? I mean, that pretty much would have been. I mean, it didn't happen, you know. I mean, that that, that mm-hmm. you know, type of military action was you know avoided. But, I mean, I wonder what history would say or commentators would say today uh, if we would have uh, invaded Cuba, you know, when, when that was going on. No, I know. It, 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 you know, if the Soviet Union had put missiles on, on Cuba, <laughs> what would we have done? Oh, yeah, we did that. We had a standoff, you know, called the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
And, and, and that was uh, actually Ukraine is even closer than Cuba in, in, in real sense. And of course, today with hypersonic weapons and even just the, the, the gravity bombs, the B-61s that we have, um, it's, you know, five, 10 minutes, what, whatever the hell, it, maybe it's 13, but close enough that Russia is not going to allow that to occur. Now, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, we had John F. Kennedy. Uh, fortunately, right now, we have Joe Biden. He probably doesn't even know where, uh, well, probably doesn't know where Ukraine is on a map because he, he, you know, he and his son made a bunch of money there and so on and so forth. But, um, right. but yeah, we had, you know, the relationship between Kennedy and Khrushchev, that, that was what walked that thing back, was their personal dialogue. In fact, apparently the uh, Khrushchev actually gave uh, Kennedy a, a particular kind of uh, dog, you know, Russian dog. They gave him a puppy, and I guess the Kennedy family has like kept this uh, line of dogs in the family or something along these lines. I'm just citing that. I maybe my exact uh, reference is not uh, totally accurate, um, but um, but the point is they had a very personal, deep relationship. And if you look at the the attempt, you know, with 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 Biden going off, and you know, it might be his senility that he's doing this, but I tend to think he's just responding to the overall uh, dialogue around him by Blinken and and Jake Sullivan and these you know freaks that run uh, run the administration. When he talks about when Biden goes off and has his so-called gaffes on, you know, saying that Russia's committing genocide or um, uh, Putin's a, a war criminal, um, these are these have serious ramifications. If, if the United States president ca- cannot have a dialogue, a personal dialogue with somebody who is a literal war cr- criminal. So accusing Russia uh, or Putin of being a war criminal might be Biden's senility, but it has an effect that he said that because it literally would mean that he couldn't talk to Putin. So actually not being able to talk to Putin, and I'm not saying Biden, you know, even knows where he is to be able to talk to Putin, but, um, you know, that is, that's a dangerous situation nonetheless to not have that, uh, the ability for heads of state to walk this situation back. So, but yeah, you're right on the, uh, the Cuban analogy. Now, now the question is though, because um, you know, you just—I hate to say it—you don't know what to take. You don't know who to believe in in the media today, uh, even ones that you know are supposedly on your side. Um, but I mean, I'm, I mean, my biggest the, the two news organizations I like the most, frankly, uh, besides mine. No, I'm just kidding. But um, I'm just kidding about this. Is uh, OAN yeah. and Newsmax. I mean, those are the ones. Those are my two favorite. Actually, our uh, internet provider here, uh, they dropped Newsmax, and then uh-huh. we, uh, we, yeah, we had direct, we had Direct TV for like 24 years, and they dropped OAN, and so we're like, well, you know, we, uh, you're dropping, you know, Newsmax for our internet provider, and you're dropping OAN. Guess what? We're dropping you. We got rid of them. Yeah. Now who we have for the internet? Yeah. Internet's still good. The TV side is um, TV stuff. We don't watch a lot of TV anyway, but I mean it's not as sophisticated as is what DirecTV was. But we're like, look, if you're going to drop these stations, you know, because you want to be woke or whatever, we're just going to drop you. Um, but anyway, 
mm-hmm. you don't really know what uh, media to believe, but I mean, are they really? I mean, if, they're, if, if the reports are true, where you're having maternity wards that are being bombed, and children are being killed, and women are being raped, and that you know, and that's going on, uh, and and, if, and, if, and Putin knows about this, and, and maybe even. Uh, you know, given the orders for it, I mean, is he really indeed a war criminal? I mean, is that that is a possibility at least. Well, um, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you have a sense of this, and, and listeners to your show, you know, think of all the the lies that have been told. To justify our wars, you know, the, the Colin Powell holding up uh, the vial of crack from George Bush. Oh no, 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 is that is supposed to be a, um, a uh, uh, whatever it was, uranium, yellow cake uranium, right? You know, the it was and it was known to be lies. In fact, Pelosi just recently admitted, um, I think it was just last year or something. She said, "Oh, yeah, it's just kind of like a passing comment." You know, yeah, yeah, we, we we had gotten briefed and we, we knew it was not true, but uh, nonetheless, Saddam had to go. And, uh, you know, so lies have been told to fight wars. And on the flip side, lies have been told to, to you know, go on, or on the flip side, it's the same kind of policy. Uh, lies have been told to... to um, you know, create uh, further justification for, for wars and interventions. So I'll give you one example of this. The White Helmets, I don't know if people know that reference, but this is a group out of Syria. And they, I think they literally won or were nominated by the Academy Awards, you know, to get an Oscar. Maybe they won. I, I forget all the details, but uh, uh, there was a documentary about them that was done. And what they were is they wore these white helmets and they would go into the uh, war in Syria and they would dig people out of the rubble and they would videotape it and so on and so forth. And then they became the source by which all of Bashar al-Assad, the, the president of Syria, whenever he, would, whenever he would be winning the war against the jihadi insurgency, you know, al-Qaeda and ISIS and all those um, you know, people that we're that we we should you know hope that he defeats. Um, whenever he's about to win the war against Al Qaeda uh, in Syria, he would then start gassing his own people. Doesn't that make a lot of sense? You know, like I yeah, I think what I'll do is uh, gas my own people so that that will justify the uh, neocon uh, neoliberal establishment in the U.S. and the British and so on to just bomb the living hell out of us uh, under uh, humanitarian, uh, the guise of humanitarian protection. Now, we know that these things were, were falsified. There were no chemical attacks, or if there were, they were actually launched Qaeda. Because, of course, Al-Qaeda was getting their weapons after Muammar Gaddafi was assassinated and Hillary Clinton cackled about it. All those weapons in uh, in Libya uh, were funneled into jihadis in Syria because we were backing the uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, by we, I don't mean the United States. Well, I, I mean the uh, the, uh, uh, the deep state crowd, whatever you want to call it. 
um, you know, CIA and so on, and MI6 and out of the British, were backing these these uh, Al Qaeda uh, uh, jihadi fighters to overthrow the government of Syria. They were on the spree of overthrowing all kinds of governments and destabilizing the whole region as part of the larger war against Russia, China, and India. Um, just like they, you know, remember the Mujahideen. They were the great freedom fighters in the 1980s when when the CIA funneled weapons into um, into Afghanistan and we funneled a bunch of money and supported the Mujahideen to fight against the Soviet Union, right? Now, who is the Mujahideen? Well, it was headed by Osama bin Laden. So we were literally giving Osama bin Laden money and weapons in the 1980s to fight against the Soviets. Where did they go next? They went to Chechnya. So when Russia fought a war against Chechnya in, uh, or fought a war over the, the, the Chechnya uh, region um, in the late 90s, who were they fighting against? Osama bin Laden and the jihadi groupings. They were di- called something different at that point. Well, guess where they went after that? Iraq. They formed ISIS. And then where'd they go? Libya. Then Syria. It's all the same grouping backed by the same money and the same corrupt deep state crowd that wants to fund these jihadis to go in and overthrow governments that they don't like. And who are they overthrowing? They're overthrowing some of the most secular governments, you know, whether you like Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi or what, women had rights there. They, you know, there was relative progressives uh, in Syria. Religions exist side by side, Jews, Christians, Muslims, you know, yeah, there, there's stories. Uh, Richard Black, who's a state senator from Virginia, um, somebody who's spoke on Schiller Institute conferences, he he recalls going to Syria, and the Muslims would put up Christmas trees for their Christian friends, you know, as a kind of solidarity thing, and they would sing. Muslims would sing Christian uh, Christmas songs, you know. Syria isn't some backwoods, uh, you know. It's a place where, you know, religions got along and was relatively stable, but guess who gets overthrown? All these, uh, all these countries. So anyway, that was a long, uh, forgive my long windedness here, but (laughs) who were in uh, Syria filming all the supposed atrocities, which were all staged events, like around these chemical attacks and so on, just gave advice to the Ukrainians on how to set up false flag operations. So, you know, this take this Bucha case, you know, where you, you've got these, the footage of these guys, you know, supposedly the Russians, you know, as they leave a town where they hadn't killed anyone, somehow just decided that they're just going to kill everybody on their way out. And then this is now, uh, you know, supposedly a justification of, Putin being a war criminal and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, there's a lot of footage that's coming out that's showing that the some of these people in the rearview mirror after the, you know, car goes by and they're laying dead on the ground, get up and start walking around. <laughs> so there's, there's certainly some anomalies there, but you have to realize that modern warfare is probably more to do with psychological warfare and media campaigns and so on. So a lot of the things that you're going to see about maternity wards being bombed, and um, these are all just part of the Psy War. Uh, Maybe the Ukrainians will get an Academy Award like the White Helmets did, but it's all, it's it's just intelligence operations, you know, being run in these nations 
um, you know, as part of winning the hearts and minds of Americans to fight World War III, I guess. I guess we're just all supposed to line up behind this and say, yeah, let's start a nuclear war so we can all be annihilated. I, I don't know what they're hoping to gain by their uh, psi war, but that's certainly um, at least well, part of it. Well, they certainly, I mean, they certainly won the hearts and minds. I mean, I'm I just driving to, uh, you know, my, my daughter's college, and, I mean, there's people who have, like, signs in their yard that uh, of the Ukrainian flag. They have, uh, you know, Ukra- you know uh, Ukrainian flags in their yard. I've seen – we just had a parade for our local baseball team for opening day, and there was a, a float where at least people marching with the big sign, you know, you know, standing with Ukraine and, and, and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. – uh, so they definitely, I well, mean, look, and then there's, you know, go, go fund me's and I get stuff in the mail, you know, about, oh, sending money to, you know, the people over in Ukraine. Uh, and again, I'm not saying these things are, are, are not happening, you know, and these people don't need, you know, you know, money because people are getting killed and things done. I'm not saying that's happening. What I'm just saying is, it's, 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 you know, they are winning, whatever's going on, it is winning the hearts and minds of, of people in America, that's for certain. And it's hard not to, frankly. I mean, you see that, you know, well, on TV, and, and it's always on TV. I'm sick of it. I mean, it's just you turn on the TV, there it is, you know. And I watch a lot of the news, yeah. so of course it's always <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. You know, frankly, I'm kind of no. you know, tired of it, but yeah, and it's and it's very difficult because I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm being somewhat hard on um, the the idea that the white helmets in Syria are organizing people in Ukraine. When, I, when I'm talking about Ukraine, I'm not talking about the Ukrainian people, right? These people are caught in the, caught in the crosshairs of something much larger. They, it, is a, it is the clash of a dying system and the emergence of a new system, and they've become the battleground for this. It's, it's effectively a proxy war. Now, the Ukraine government... Zelensky aside, the the government was uh, just to go back to 2014 when uh, you know Biden was sort of the overseer of it, but it was Victoria Nuland who was the on the ground force. She was the uh, I forget the undersecretary of some aspect of the State Department, a very senior level of um, Eurasian affairs. I think was the uh, post that Victoria Nuland had. Um, she oversaw the coup d'etat that overthrew the, the government of Viktor Yanukovych um, back in 2014. And some of the people that she worked with are known neo-Nazis, well, I shouldn't say neo-Nazis, they never stopped being Nazis to become neo-Nazis, they've always been Nazis, literally going back to the days of Hitler when um, the, the grouping around Stepan Bandera uh, joined hands with Adolf Hitler to, you know, to fight against the Russians uh, during World War II. There was a grouping of Ukrainian Nazis that have operated to this day, and they were the ones that were the, the hardcore of the violent activity in the Maidan uh, when the when the when the coup in 2014 happened. Uh, to overthrow the Yanukovych government, and this was done explicitly with State Department uh, help. I mean, Victoria Nuland said she paid $5 billion to do this uh, over the course of years to, you know, create the seeds for this. 
Now, just a, one quick thing. Victoria Newland's husband is Robert Kagan. Robert Kagan is the founder of the Project for a New American Century, which was all the neocons of Wolfowitz, Cheney, Richard Pearl, all these types, who said, we're not going to let any you know, uh, uh, challenge to the U.S. as the sole superpower of the world and, you know, basically saying Russia, China, and India, watch out. And then they had a target list of nations. This project for a new American century had a target list of nations, which included Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, you know, uh, uh, you know, down the list, all the Yemen and so on, all the nations that we've been bombing. That was these neocons declaration in the late 90s. And Robert Kagan's wife is Victoria Nuland, who ran the coup in Ukraine all to get a, con- a confrontation against Russia going. So the point is Ukraine is a battleground and those people are suffering. Now you have these hardcore you know, Nazi types that are the front lines of things. And you know, they, they don't mind World War III and they don't mind using their own people as uh, human shields and so on. You know? So it is a terrible what is happening to the Ukrainian people. Most people are, you know, that's what they're siding with. They, you know, are just looking at the situation and they're saying, oh, my God, there's a war. It looks like Russia attacked. You know, how can I stand in solidarity with this? You know, so I'm not, like, blaming people for, but it's it's part of the side war where people don't know the background or they don't even know, you know. That, uh, there was an NBC thing, which uh, I saw. Um, about uh, Ukrainian soldiers training elderly people to shoot AK-47s at the Russians. And these are literally Azov battalion guys. These are Nazis. They have Nazi insignia on their, their, you know, jackets. And this is on NBC. This is freaky, to be honest, because you have to wonder, like, well, how pervasive is this Nazi thing? You know, we sort of in the U.S., we think of neo-Nazis, oh, yeah, just shave your head and do I'll Hitler, you're a joke, you know. But it, here, this is real Nazi shit. And they're, you know, uh, well, anyway, that's, uh, so anyway, I don't blame the American people for getting confused about things, but they do have to, you know, should think back and say, wait a second, haven't I supported all kinds of wars against dictators and found out that they were all based on shams and Maybe this one is too, you know. Oh, did you cut out there, uh, Dave? Uh, I uh, I perhaps abruptly ended my point, which was just to say that you know, as uh, Ukraine is being used as the as the battleground for a war against Russia and the demonization of Putin as a war criminal you know, perhaps the American people will begin to realize that, you know, they've, they've been fed lies before to demonize world leaders like Gaddafi, like Saddam Hussein. I hope that they don't go along with this in the case of, of Putin as well, because obviously we have nuclear weapons on the, on the plate. But they, I think this is, you know, this, some of the attempts to, you know, win people over emotionally over a terrible situation in Ukraine unfortunately is vectored towards building support for a world war. And it's not, uh, that's not a good idea. Well, that's, well, see, I just lost my train of thought. I, I get, I get messages literally throughout the entire night. And this, this uh, message popped up that actually, you know, that grabbed my attention. So I was like, you know, it took my ah. train of thought away. 
is that you know well you talk about well you talk about you know you know World War Three. I mean they have nuclear weapons and I mean I don't know if it, if it I mean I guess it could I mean I guess it, it, it could come to that. I mean some think that you know it's, it's, it's closer even now than it's ever been uh, to World War Three. But I, I I just don't know if anyone's actually stupid enough to actually use you know nuclear weapons on either side. But I do. It does almost make me wish like we would get attacked by some aliens just to bring us together. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, I, sometimes I do think that's what it's going to take. Uh, you know, you know that, or maybe you know, maybe a nuclear war. I know uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and you know, that, you know they kind of allude to. Uh, I know they talk about the eugenics war. I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but they talk about you know. Uh, you know, a war, you know, that almost ended humanity and it will help, you know, woke us up to, you know, what we're doing, things of that nature. Um, but boy, it's certainly, you know, I'll tell you what, the people who want to do, uh, well, you know what, here's a thought. For the people who want to deplete the population, maybe that, maybe nuclear war is their, their goal. Because if, I'll tell you if there's one thing that, you know, that wipes out a population, you know, nuclear war would do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a combination of things. Um, you know, you have to realize, number one, the British monarchy, the city of London crowd. You know, when I when I say the city of London, maybe people know this, but um, it's also referred to as the square mile. It's, a, it's the financial district of London. So London has about 30 boroughs, you know, London, the, the city, not the city of London, but London as a city that people know of, a metropolitan area has about 30 different boroughs. One borough is called the city of London. It's actually not really, it's almost like the Vatican City is to Rome, or I mean to Italy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like there, but it's not, it's its own entity. That's sort of how the city of London operates. This is your financial center. It is your power center. It is your coordinating aspect of all the offshore banks on the Cayman Islands and uh, Guernsey and, you know, all these places where they have all these uh, tax shelters for mega corporations and and, uh, financial houses and so on. All, All of that is coordinated through the city of London. They have a branch office in New York called Wall Street. Uh, Wall Street is not an American institution. It is a wholly owned uh, aspect of the British Empire. That's not to say that Wall Street bankers are all, you know, imperial freaks or something like that. Uh, Many of them would actually like to do what bankers do best, which is get credit to people that are going to grow an economy and and wouldn't mind investing in the real things instead of fake scams called credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities and all these kind of uh, scams. Um, but anyway, this crowd, well, actually just real quick, the city of London was established as a corporation, um, I believe in like, some people say 1090, I've seen other things say 1190, uh, but certainly when the, uh, Venetians left Venice, went to Amsterdam and then with William of Orange went and basically conquered England. Uh, the the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company were formed. So this is, you know, early uh, 1700s. I I forget exactly when the British East India Company was formed. Maybe it's actually 1600s. 
anyway, whatever. That's this crowd. They go back centuries. Some of them think they go back millennia. And their idea is if, if we can't run the world, we don't care. We'll blow it up. Or, or we'll go sit in a, you know, New Zealand and have our way with sheep for, you know, and try to ride out the, the fallout and, you know, rebuild civilization later, rebuild whatever our, our oligarchical system later, you know. Um, to them, this is existential. On the other hand, China, India cannot succumb to that agenda of globalization, of just being looted and used as a uh, raw materials, you know, exporter and just have all your resources stolen and your people impoverished, right? They're not going to go along with that system anymore. Um, So we have a clash of two systems. Now, in the middle of that, you got a jet. He's got weapons. And something happens. He's not sure what. And all of a sudden, he unleashes a missile. And all of a sudden, that missile hits, and it was a gravity nuke, a mini nuke. And that mini nuke, you know, maybe it's only, you know, 20 times the size of Hiroshima. It's supposedly a small nuclear yield. But it's enough to then get a response from the Russians and say, holy shit, what happened there? Was that an actual nuclear attack? And boom. Once the weapons go, Pakistan unleashes theirs, India unleashes theirs, North Korea unleashes theirs, Israel unleashes theirs, everything goes. And it's all over in about a half hour. Well, it might flag on for a little bit longer. Um, If anybody's left, it would be a nuclear winter. All the dust and debris that would get kicked up would block out the sun. Probably, there's just not going to be anything living left. So the point is, is in these kind of tensions, when you have this epic clash and people are throwing around the idea that, you know, if, we, if we're going to take nuclear weapons off the table, Putin's not going to understand. You have neocons and actually Tony Blair, the architect of the Iraq war, the uh, prime minister of the UK who got Bush to go along with the Iraq war and so on. Uh, just recently came out and said, if we're, if we're not going to threaten Russia with nuclear warfare, uh, they're not going to listen. Therefore, we have to be prepared to do that. So these, you know, these people are sick, and they're talking about the extermination of humanity for whatever geopolitical gains they have. And in that kind of insane environment, some accident happens, it's over, you know. So admittedly there are probably a lot in the u.s military that are like whoa 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 you know don't these people know what they're talking about but uh insanity unfortunately has gripped the decision making in the transatlantic in the u.s and europe and forces of so-called nato and so you can't put these things you can't rule these things out and we have to uh bring sanity to the table by saying it's we have to go to a new concept. The, the, the old ideas and the old way of doing things are dead. That's why we stress this Treaty of Westphalia, you know, concept that you've got to people to sit down, say, yes, 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 we've been fighting Hatfields and McCoys, but you know what, let's just let it go and, and figure out a new system moving forward. Um, so that's what we got to do. And you, um, 
Now, I, I think, I mean, I, do you think the war has, you know, on, on Russia's uh, perspective, do you think it's taken a lot longer than what they thought it was going to be? Well, I tell you this, Russia certainly hasn't telegraphed much of anything. Um, they're holding the, the cards to the, to the chest um, in terms of what they expected and how long they expected and all, and all these matters. So I, I couldn't answer that question, you know, the way that you stated it. I, I can tell you what their objectives were um, that Putin announced. Number one was, you know, Ukraine would not join NATO. They would not pursue a nuclear weapons program. Then there was the overall demilitarization of, of Ukraine, um, and then the denazification of Ukraine, as well as the recognition of the uh, breakaway republics of, of that were the part of you know Southeast Ukraine, you know largely Russian speaking and sort of Russian culturally oriented. Because well, too long ago they were a part of. Soviet Union or Russia, you know. Um, so, and then also the uh, red line of Crimea that Russia will never give Crimea back to, to Ukraine. Um, so now, on all of those fronts, you have to think of where we're at in the situation. Um, Zelensky has made certain statements that uh, yeah, we're not probably not going to join NATO anytime soon. Um, and then, of course, as the nuclear weapons program, you know, there's not much left in Ukraine uh, because the demilitarization policy uh, of the Russians has wiped out a lot of their military installations and capabilities. Um, what we have now is the force of the, you know, the Azov battalions and the Ukrainian military that unfortunately a lot of these guys, they have these Nazi groupings inside their, you know, their platoons or, you know, the, the smaller uh, military units will have these Nazi types stationed there and they keep them in the game. Because a lot of the Ukrainian military would probably just say, this is crazy, uh, the Donbass region go and have a neutral status for Ukraine. I mean, Jesus, what, actually Ukraine, you should remember, in the early 90s, Ukraine, part of the Ukrainian constitution was to be a neutral state. In other words, not like a block status, sort of like a Switzerland concept. So why, you know, what, what is wrong with doing that? You know, why join NATO or why join Russia? You don't have to do either. You can just be a neutral state and have people come and be tourists and, you know, and, and build. They have a, a fairly industrial, you know, advanced uh, economic capability as well as agricultural capability. So why would you push a, a, a red line and push a button with Russia to get them to attack you, you know? So anyway, the point is um, there is a, a, a cauldron that has been formed as far as I understand it. You know, some of this stuff, it's the fog of war, so you never quite know what's going on. Um, the It appears that the Russians could potentially move in to sort of encircle that and you know, finish the job on the hardcore of the neo-Nazis and liberate this uh, Donbass region. Um, so, you know, how long that takes, I don't know. What what kind of escalations there will be uh, from the NATO forces, uh, I, I don't know. Um, but it's a very, very tense situation. Um, and 
unfortunately, without sanity, um, it appears that perhaps the only way this is going to be resolved is militarily, um, at least uh, creating the openings for the next step of some sort of, you know, diplomatic and uh, uh, overall discussion that has to happen. I mean, you know, summer contending, and unfortunately, we're running out of time here, so we're going to have to take closing comments in a little bit, and then I'm going to have to close things out. Uh, certainly appreciate all your time tonight. It was definitely very informative, and, and I had a lot of you know fun just listening to it. You know, a lot of it. And I appreciate you answering my questions, but you know, some are contending that you know Putin's not going to be satisfied with this in in Korea, uh, not Korea, <laughs> in Ukraine, um, and then he's you know going to go after the you know the Baltic states because he's wanting to uh, revitalize the old Soviet Union. Is that something you would you subscribe to? Do you believe that's one uh, one of his aims? Well. I mean, number one, Russia needs any more land. They've got a lot of land. They've got the biggest nation um, uh, on the planet, I believe. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Twelve time zones. A lot of resources. Um, What they want is to be recognized as a sovereign nation and to pursue their own uh, development uh, conception, you know, their own their own independent development, you know. Um, so as far as the just outright invasion of, you know, the Baltic states, I mean, some of those Baltic states are uh, have a lot of uh, political <laughs> strangeness about them, and um, you know, you're not going to just go in and occupy some force where you're just going to have to devote immense resources just for a few square miles of land, I mean, for small nations anyway. So the point is, you know, some of this is um, part of the psi war to sort of keep people engaged. They're coming for you next, and it's, you know, reestablishing the Soviet Union and so on. Now, there are, is discussion, will Russia move for other parts of Ukraine? You know, right now they're saying they just want to liberate the Donbass region, but you know, who knows what Ukraine, what shape Ukraine is going to be in politically. It's a total friggin' mess. You know, Zelensky has just gone off the deep end, you know? So what's left there, you know, you still have these um, um, neo-Nazi groupings running around and, you know, represent not necessarily a small political force, but that's how the Nazis started out too. They weren't some giant, you know, political force. They were a minority, uh, Hitler was a joke, you know, when they ran, anyway, so the point is, is, you know, will will Putin have to do something else in in Ukraine? You know, I don't know. I don't know where it all goes from here, but but as far as this, you know, further expansion and and so on, I I think this is, there's a lot of this that's just war. If if Putin was given some guarantees that NATO wouldn't expand, that they weren't going to be um, you know, that they're, uh, they're going to have this sort of belligerence towards Russia. Uh, he'd be probably very glad to sign on the dotted line and say, yep, here's the security guarantees. I won't go your direction. You won't come my direction. Leave it at that. We'll go back home and develop, you know, develop our resources and build up our economy and work with other friendly nations, including maybe even you, you know, meeting the U.S. and European nations that comprise NATO. They, 
gladly participate in a collaborative relationship, I am sure. Uh, that's at least my reading on it, and I've watched Putin over over decades, and I, I, I do say he, he does what he says, and he has offered collaboration with, um, you know, with the United States and with, with European nations. He's actually offered that he says, why don't we work together to destroy terrorists? You know, we don't like ISIS. You don't like ISIS, or you're not supposed to like ISIS. We don't like al-Qaeda. You don't like al-Qaeda. Let's work together and rid the world of terrorists, you know. But instead, they, it's been – anyway – that's that's the point. I, I think if they, if there were security agreements signed, uh, there would be no expansion of of Russia's activities. If it gets tenuous and and uh, uh, chaotic for Russia's security, uh, I, you know, I don't know where it goes from there. Okay, and then um, yeah, I do see uh, that you know. Unfortunately, uh, it's soon as time to say goodnight. Uh, certainly appreciate all your time. Would definitely like to have you uh, back on again as uh, you know things develop there over in Ukraine. I just wonder, uh, you know, who would be the right nation? Who would be the right person to actually be the mediator uh, between there? I, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it'd be the United States. Maybe someone, not maybe someone like Switzerland or, or, or someone. Um, that really doesn't have any skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, but anyway, Kelly, uh, we, we still got you here on the line. Do you want to have any closing comments before I bring it over to uh, close things out for the night? Well, I think, I think Kelly might be hanging out with his girlfriend, but we said <laughs> on the call. Uh, but anyway, uh, just for a programming note, uh, you know, well, of course, we'll be, you know, she'll be back here uh, next week. Uh, as most of you know, I, I am campaigning at this time. So on the 27th, I have a campaign event to go to on the 27th, which is two Wednesdays from now. Uh, so we will not be doing uh, an episode that uh, uh, that evening. I've got a speech to give because uh, I'm, I'm going up against a well-named opponent. So I got to get myself out there more than my opponent does. So, <laughs> so it will be on the 27th. Uh, Still, you know, working on some uh, other folks to, to get on the show as well. We'll definitely be, uh, you know, doing updates like this, and definitely want to hear more about uh, the, uh, you know, the conference. I'll, I haven't get a chance to watch uh, all of it, but uh, I'll have uh, Robert, you know, you, more time to watch it all. Go ahead, Dave. What are you running for? You, you say you're running for office? Uh, yeah, precinct executive. Okay. Cool. Yeah, right. For a printing executive, uh, yeah, Jim Carter Jr. Yeah, he's, he's been on a guest on the show. He's uh, one of the founders as well as Kelly of uh, Watch to Vote USA. Um, and so that you know, they're pretty much talked me into. It. I said, okay, I'll do it. Um, a lot of folks actually go unopposed for that position, uh, but mm-hmm. in my case, no. I just happen to be going up against uh, a well-known name in the area. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, I've got to put more work into it, apparently. <laughs> yeah, good luck. It's good to put yourself out there. Well, I appreciate it. But I do have to close things out. Uh, so, of course, we want to thank uh, you know David for coming on the show. Definitely want to see uh, you come on back again. Uh, thanks for everyone who's listening, whether you're listening live or uh, listening to the podcast, not only here in the United States, but as I pointed out earlier, uh, our international listeners as well. And welcome, Ireland, uh, to listening to the show as uh 
was a thrill for me uh, to, to, to see that we do have listeners over in Ireland. Uh, so uh, thank you for that, and hopefully uh, spread the word to get, get more of uh, our listenership uh, from uh, from Ireland. That'd be that'd pretty pretty neat for me. But I will close tonight as I do every night, and that is with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And we will see you all next time. And in the meantime, uh, have a good night, uh, good week, and take care. Good night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.